Hello there, welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny G. Today we're going over UFC Fight Night Krylov vs. Span, aka UFC Vegas 70, 13 fights in the card. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time. If you're new to the channel, stay tuned. I think you'll like our style here. If you're not new, you know how we do it. One fight at a time, deep dive. We'll give you the pick for our fights right at the beginning of each video, so you don't have to wait and have timestamps down below. Keep it nice and clean for you. I uh, want to remind you, please subscribe to our Substack newsletter if you want access to our full tip sheet because we publish that around Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek. It's a full write-up of the entire card. It's basically the same thing we're doing here, but in a written format. But the thing is, you also get the full tip sheet at the end of that write-up. So that's all of our parlays, our props. Too much to talk about right now, but it's all there for you. If you look down below here on YouTube, there's a link there for our Substack newsletter. Subscribe to it. It's totally free. There's no paywall, no Patreon. There's no... You get a few picks free and then you have to pay for other ones. Everything's free, very comprehensive, very easy to use. And we also use it as a tracking system. So our tip sheet, which is available for all of our events, it goes out in our newsletter and then we update it when the event's over. So you see how you did and how we did. You can sort of cross check and checks and balances, right? <clears throat> That's the point. So main event's gonna be Nikita Krylov versus Ryan Spann. A bit of a light card, obviously no belts in the line. Last week was kind of a light card, so we have a common theme, but March is going to be bananas, so at least we get some UFC, can't complain too much. We do have a few women's bouts in the card, uh, some spots we like a lot. We do have a few dogs that we like quite a bit. A reminder, if you want access to our full breakdown notes, that's also available to you guys via Google Drive. Google Drive, excuse me, if you look down below here in the description, you're gonna see there's a link there for the Google Drive. If you follow that link, Again, it's totally free. You get access to each of our fight breakdowns, the fighter comparisons, pros and cons. And then we also have our full Excel sheet up there where you have, it's an enormous Excel sheet. You have a film library there with links to three or four fights for each fighter and their stats and comparisons and just a bunch of information. That's basically hours and hours of nonsense research that we do here to break down fights. But we wanna share it with you and it's available to you guys absolutely free. So again, look down below here on YouTube. You'll find the links for our Substack newsletter, for the Google Drive, and also for our Excel sheet. It's all available there for each event, nice and organized for you. All that said, guys, let's jump into the first fight, the prelim card, here we go. All right, what should be the first fight in the card is going to be a bantamweight bout, 135 pounds between Jose Johnson and Garrett Armfield. Currently, Armfield is a favorite at minus 150. Johnson undecided at plus 130. We're going to tell you right now, we like Johnson to win the fight by decision. Now, it seems like a lot of people are on Armfield. On Armfield. We get it, but man, when watching the film, we didn't uh, we didn't fall in love with him. We, we found it to be a lot of issues. Now, for Jose Johnson, don't get me wrong, very inconsistent. He's 15-7 and seven for a reason. And has had his moments, fighter IQ, so on and so on. But look at his body of work. I think he's fought the better opponents. I think he's showed some glimmers of some really good submission ability. In the case of Gar Garrett Armfield, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid yet. You know, I I've got to see more from this kid to be able to say, I'm going to warrant betting on him at minus 150 against a fighter who, at the very least, has more experience and has fought some good opponents. Now, for Armfield coming off of this round two triangle loss to David Onama, doesn't look good. It was his UFC debut, though. Um, indication, though, of what it's like when you come into the UFC and, you know, you start facing better opponents, you end up having some trouble. In the case of Johnson, he comes in here off of a win in his last fight, which was on Contender Series. It was his second time on Contender Series. He got a win by decision, gets the contract, but it was an undefeated fighter called Jack Cartwright, who was 10-0, so it was a quality win. And going back looking at that fight, you see some of the things that Joe Johnson is good at, or Jose Johnson. All right, basic information on these two fighters. Let's go over their details first. So Jose is 15-7 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. 
the slight dog here out of Corpus Cove, Texas, 27 years old, six foot high with a 74 inch reach. He's out of Street Kings. Now, so height and reach, there is about a four to five inch height advantage, height advantage there for Jose and roughly about a four inch reach advantage. It's gonna be a factor. In this case, it's gonna be a factor. We'll talk more about that. Garrett Armfield, eight and three overall, three to his last five fights. The favorite here at minus 150 out of Florida, 26 years old, five foot six in high with a 70 inch reach out of Kill Cliff FC, formerly known as Sanford MMA. Very good gym. So when it comes to gyms, there are advantages there for, for Garrett Armfield for where he's training size-wise, advantage for Jose. Experience-wise, Jose, both about the same age. That shocked me. 27 years old. If you ask me how old is Jose Johnson, I'm guessing 31, 32, at least. So it's like the, there's misconceptions, perceptions, right? Sometimes perception is not always reality. We talked about that a lot last year when we were breaking down the Gilbert Burns fight versus Ch Chemayev. The perception was that Chemayev was going to roll through Gilbert Burns, and that wasn't the reality. In the case of Jose Johnson, the perception is he's got bad fighter IQ. He, he's, um, he barely belongs in the UFC. He had a chance before. He won by decision on contender series. Didn't really you know, dominate his opponent. He's probably going to have a few fights and you know, get burnt out of the UFC. That's the perception. Heck, that's the perception that we kind of have. So if you have that perception of him, it's okay. It's okay. We were in the same boat with you. But watch the film, especially his fight on Contender Series, which is the most recent one against an opponent that was undefeated that was the favorite to win the fight. And you know what? What you saw from Jose Johnson there was, was good cardio, a matured version of him. Yes, gave up position once or twice to chase like a heel hook or something stupid. Don't love that. But always was able to reverse position on the ground, was able to get the best of his opponent, landed some nasty elbows, had his opponent's face you know, lumped up, not bleeding, but lumped up. Then I look at Ar Garrett Armfield, and I'm like, wait a second. The boxing is raw. The takedown offense is nil. Slow. He's going to have a speed disadvantage against Jose. He's going to have an athleticism disadvantage against Jose. He's fought lesser competition. He's lost three of those fights against lesser competition. Give me some Jose Johnson here. And if the fight gets to the ground, and if Jose's on his back especially, Garrett's going to get submitted. Because from his back, Jose has very flexible hips. Remember, he's got the height and reach advantage. Don't think of height and reach on the feet. Think of it as also on the ground, being longer. I always use the example of Nate Diaz. He doesn't, you know, Nate Diaz was never that buff guy, right? But that length, those thinner forearms become like blades underneath your, your chin when you're trying to choke somebody. So Jose Johnson has that factor. I like him here. How will we bet it? I like the fight going into at least over round and a half. I think Garrett Armfield is durable enough to make it past round and a half. And I think Jose Johnson's patient enough to also get to a round and a half. I don't see either fighter like coming out wild. So I like the over one and a half prop. I like Jose Johnson into the distance by submission probably would be the one I play the most. And then just Jose Johnson on the money line. So we will play Jose Johnson straight up. How much? Well, you know, a unit maybe. You know, that's how much, that's how confident we are in him. For Garrett Armfield, just got to see more, dude. Round two triangle choke in his last fight loss to David Onama. We talked about the submission ability of Jose Johnson. This is a good matchup for Jose. Now let's talk narrative for a second. Who would the UFC want? Jose Johnson, Garrett Armfield. I think they want both of them, honestly, because they need guys to fill the prelim spots for fight cards like this. These guys may not fight again the rest of the year. <laughs> Who knows? But for this weekend, we need them, and the UFC values them. So from this standpoint... I don't think we have like a big future in the UFC for either guy. I think they're, lim they're limited on their potential and their ability. But for right now, they're needed. And I do think that Garrett Armfield, big opportunity. I believe he falls to 0-2 in the UFC. I think Jose Johnson gets his first win in the UFC. And let's see what else Jose can do. You know, can he evolve and get better from here? Because he's got the skill set. He's got the tools. 
if you're hearing this breakdown, you, you heard it here first. We're on Jose Johnson, so be careful of the, of the people that are telling you to get on Armfield. Be careful of it. If anything, <laughs> here's a plug for you. Subscribe to our newsletter. <clears throat> we give you access to our free Excel sheet where we give a breakdown of the fights, comparisons, and all the way to the right side of our Excel sheet is a free f film library. You can go and watch Garrett Armfield. There's a bunch of links right there for you for Jose and Armfield. We did all the work for you. Click those links, watch the fights, and you tell your, you ask yourself, does Garrett Armfield look like he's going to come in here and, and just win this fight outright as a minus 150 favorite? No. No, 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 no. I didn't see that in the film. But he's a good fighter. He looked okay in regional scene. Jose Johnson, for all of his flaws and inconsistency, yes, but still has been able to hang. He's got to win in the contender series against a good fighter. I'm going with Jose Johnson. That's your pick. Let's move on. All right, moving up the prelim card, we've got a bantamweight bout, two female fighters at 135 pounds. The American, Haley All Hail Cowan versus Aylin Perez, who goes by Fiona. I'm thinking like Fiona, isn't she from that ogre movie? Like the the ogre Fiona? Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. As for the pick, let me get out of the way right now. We like Perez to win the fight by decision at plus 160. Granted, she's a slight dog here at plus 115. You can get counted on the side at minus 135. Priced accordingly, both fighters have a lot to prove. In the case of Cowan, she's really lucky to be here. We'll talk about that when we get to her details. Looking at the particulars of these two fighters, 7-2 and two for Cowan. 4-1 in her last five fights out of Waco, Texas, 31 years old. 5-8 in height with a 69.3-inch reach. She's out of Blitz Sports MMA. As for Miss Perez, 7-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, hailing out of Argentina. She's now based out of, uh, she's still based out of Argentina, so I'm not sure if she's training in the United States. No, she is. That's right. She's out of MMA Masters, and the latest report was that she came and did her whole camp MMA Masters. So even though she's still, I think, living in Argentina, she did her entire camp MMA Masters, which is a good sign. 5-5 five, five in height for her. With a 66-inch reach, so height and reach-wise will be an advantage on the side of Haley Cohen. She's going to have about a 3-inch reach, a height advantage, and about a 3-inch reach advantage. And as for age, 28 years old for Aylin, 31 years old for Cowan. So those are the basics information that we can see on Tapology. According to the votes on Tapology, Cowan is the favorite, getting 77% of the votes. Some more details. Um, Haley Cowan is a southpaw. Her background, by the way, she was a tumbler quasi-gymnast like in high school and then went to I think what is the University of Baylor where she was like national I want to say national champion that's the incorrect uh, way to describe her but she was like all-american several time national honors type of thing in power tumbling or tumbling and so she has an athletic background and she moved over to mixed martial arts after college educated got a degree average fight time 15 minutes landing 1.73 strikes per minute absorbing 1.27 75% takedown defense and averaging one takedown per fight. This is all based upon a small sample size of just her one fight on Contender Series. And she has 12 total fights combined between amateur and pro. We mentioned before she's out of Blitz Sports MMA. That is a growing gym. They do have some pretty good fighters there. We would categorize Haley Cowan's style as a wrestler. She's got good cardio, very athletic, and she's got the looks. She's got the looks. We'll talk about that as we get towards the end of the breakdown. Our concerns for her, she's a bit one-dimensional. Uh, wrestling defense isn't great. Her last fight, split decision, we'll talk about that in a second. So as for Perez, the highlight points on her, switch stance fighter. So the uh, southpaw stance of Haley shouldn't be much of a, a deal here for the Argentinian fighter. Perez is out of Masters. She's a wrestler. Lands 1.62 strikes per minute. Kind of a low volume. Absorbs 1.52. 
more or less equal input versus output. Not great stats there. Averages 1.52 takedowns per 15 minutes, a little more than Haley Cowan, but more or less in the same ballpark with 71% take that defense. So about the same take that defense for both fighters and for Perez, only eight total fights. What does she do? Well, wrestling, obviously we talked about it. Submissions. She has like none on her resume, but she does attack submissions and maybe she has one. I'm sorry, but the point is she attacks submissions. That's where you'd hope to see her make an evolution. She's pretty good on the ground. If she could improve there, maybe she could start picking up some submission wins. She's got a lot of personality. We'll talk about her personality, but she's definitely a bit of a show woman, not show man, right? She's got pretty good power in her punches. Her finish rate's decent. She has five finishes in her seven career wins. Our concerns for her, her last fight came in very confident on stage. You know, the, the face-offs with her and Egger. She's up there twerking, you know, shaking her, shaking what her mama gave her. And doing all of this and then comes out in the fight and more or less lays, lays a goose egg. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, against Egger, she had a really hard time with the judo trips and, and judo, uh, basically judo takedowns. Egger did it to her a few times and she just never adjusted. Pretty of a sloppy wrestler at times and then poor submission defense against Eggers, especially, especially which we'll talk about. Okay, so the prediction here is Perez by decision. And let me just tell you a story. When I had watched Haley Cowan fight on contender series let's you know let's get into that you know let's get into that right we're off the bat well let me talk about one thing first the combined strikes per per fighter combined is 3.35 per minute this is going to be a low striking affair probably a bit of grappling against defense a lot of grappling on the ground they're not high volume strikers they do most of their work in the wrestling for Haley cowan it's control wrestling control position maybe land a few shots for Perez, it's a bit of the same. We may not see the most exciting fight. There might be more excitement in the face-off and the weigh-in. And if Perez wins, she's in there twerking and shaking you know, her, her bottom all over the place. Otherwise, we may end up seeing a slow-paced fight, just putting it out there. So so for Cowan, let's talk about this now. She comes into this fight off of Contender Series, and I want to talk about this Contender Series fight. I would really encourage you to watch it if you have some time. It's available online. It's out there. If you need a link to that actual fight, it's available on our Excel sheet. That Excel sheet's available on our Google Drive. If you go down below here, in the link the link is down below in the description here. You'll see a link in our YouTube description, which will give you a link to our Google Drive where you can find our Excel sheet. And in that Excel sheet, we have a film library with links for prior fights for all the fighters on the card. But if you go there, you can click on the link and see the prior fight for Cowan that we're referring to. And look, just watch it. It's 15 minutes of your time. You'll get to see more, more of her. You'll get to understand why we really are not on her to win the fight as an outright bet. It's not that we're sure she's going to lose, but it's just one of those things where after that fight, we took a mental note. And here's what you'll see. You'll see that she does a pretty good job in round one. She does cut her opponent. Very good. Check, check. Very good. Round two, she gets wrestled, taken down, and appears to lose round two. Finishes round two on her back. Finishes round two defending, you know, triangle chokes, uh, almost allowed a, a rear naked choke to start at some point. Round two, she lost round two. The momentum had shifted. In round three, she gets off to a pretty good start. She's on top. And then about the two minute and like 15 second or so point of round with two minutes, 15 seconds left to go in round three, excuse me, Cowan ends up on her back, never gets it, never gets up never gets up and her opponent is able to control her land some strikes it looks pretty clear that she lost the fight looks pretty damn clear now shift now end of the show dana white is asked who he wants to give a contract to he gives a contract to Haley cowan 
And when he's asked why, you know, what, what's the, what's the methodology here, dude? He says something like his tongue is tied. He can't really, he's like, you know, I, I don't really know how to put my finger on it. Um, you know, but she's, uh, you know, she's, you know, she's, she, you know, she's got a lot to offer. I think, you know, I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but, uh, we're going to take her, we're going to take her. And I'm thinking to myself, he couldn't just say what he really was thinking, which is we're looking for more attractive female fighters. If we could find them to add to the roster. And she fits the bill. Now, she may not be your type. I'm talking to you. She may not be your type. I get it. But she's blonde. She's American. And, you know, sort of, sort of fits the bill. I I believe the, the largest target audience for mixed martial arts fans is men, like late 20s, middle-aged, American men, white men, conservative men. So we have to discuss the elephant in the room. The female fighters in the roster who, let's say, look not heterosexual, you know, carrying a shorter haircut. And I have nothing against people who make whatever choices you want. But this is the business of entertainment. And they're trying to sell the whole brand. And if the the biggest target target audience is men, middle-aged white men that are conservative, you know, and, and so all of that was probably going through Dana White's head when he was trying to explain, well, uh, yeah, Sanko, we're, we're just, uh, Laura, we just, we just like her, right? So <clears throat> fact be told, she barely won the fight. She won by split decision. Dana saw it too. And for some reason was like, I'm going to add her to the roster. It was at that moment we said to ourselves, we are fading Cowan the next time we see her. And yeah, okay. You can't write things in stone, especially when it comes to mixed martial arts or to gambling. And the fight wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad for Cowan. She did do some good things. Her physique was really strong. Her cardio looked good. But you know, after it was all said and done, we felt, man, she got a little bit lucky here. <laughs> she kind of got in here, you know. A question I wrote down to myself, I'm looking at my notes here. I said, would the average MMA male fan prefer watching Cheyenne Vlismus versus Dern McKenzie? I have a few beers. If you could be live, cage side, have a few drinks with your buddies. Would you rather watch Vlismus versus McKenzie Dern or Jessica Andrade versus Amanda Lemos? And you know, the hardcore MMA fans going to say, oh, listen, I, you know, blah, blah. I'm just trying to keep it simple. I'm not trying to make this a you know hectic conversation here. I think what's going on here is clearly the UFC is trying to prop up this young potential fighter in Cowan. You know, she's marketable. She's got some, you know, ground skills, makes some improvements. So she moves on to this stage. Now they're giving her another opponent that I believe she can beat. And I believe kind of should be based upon what we've seen so far from Perez. So we are hesitant to fade Cowan here. I, I will say that. Let's talk about Perez for a second here. Let's get into the, the twerking Argentinian sensation. So let me back up. Not only did she twerk on the stage after she, right after she did her face off with Edgar, she kind of backed up, got her hands on her knees, turned around, did a little twerk twerk, and then like kind of rubbed her butt or something like that with her hands. I mean, flirting with the whole media crew and blowing kisses and did all this stuff. So she's a bit of a personality and there's a place for that. I mean, it mixed martial arts, professional level mixed martial arts, and you can go one championship. You can go out to um, whatever you can go to a variety of different promotions and they, they have their own way of doing things. I'll bring up Alejandra Lara from Bellator. Granted, things are not going her way wins and loss wise, but she comes out with the dancing and whatever. And if you go out to the Far East, you'll find them doing all kind of different shit on the way into the octagon. 
So this is Perez. Perez has her own little thing going. And I, I believe there's room for that in this sport. As long as it stays above board, it's not too disrespectful. There's a, there's a place for it. So Perez comes into this fight off of an ugly loss to Stephanie Eggers. And I mentioned some highlights about it earlier, but I'm going to kind of peel back some more layers here. Because if you watched it like I watched it and replayed it a few times and you're just like itching your neck, like, come on, what are you doing, Perez? So Eggers out grapples her. Perez goes in for multiple takedowns, kind of is about to have them. Then Eggers with a judo, um, judo background, just judo trip type of thing, twists and turns down and takes Perez down. Perez is not doing much. At one point, Perez had top control. She had Egger on her back. <laughs> that was in round two. Egger, and I'm watching that. I'm like, it says on topology that she she loses in round two. How is this going to happen? She's on top control. What, what's going to happen here? And yeah, Egger gets back up. So Perez is not great at keeping people down. And you'd figure with the dump truck that she's got in her lower back that she'd have that center of gravity area and she'd just like weigh on people. I mean, get in north-south position. Just put her clam right there in their face. Do whatever she's got to do. But my thinking is that, again, even if she gets a takedown in this fight, I'm not so sure. She keeps Cowan down very long because Cowan is pretty athletic. It's a bit of a concern for me. Put it that way. So Perez, in round two, loses by submission in what looks to be some of, like, you're raising fighter IQ questions because it's final seconds of round two. Like, final seconds. Like the clapper just went off and the submission just gets started and you see Perez, Perez is tapping before she even gets the submission in. Moments before the submission gets put in, Perez has hands in her, she has her hands here. Eggers is on her back, kind of throwing some little punches to try to distract her, you know, and instead of just, you know, protecting yourself, Perez Gets her hands up here. You see right away, Eggers slips in one arm. Just one arm. She's not even trying to get the second one in. One arm, and Perez is still not responding. Like, you're about to get choked. It's the end of round two. We're talking extremely low-level fighter IQ. Horrible submission defense. She wasn't bleeding at that time. She wasn't uh, showing signs of fatigue. She hadn't been defending you know, submissions for long periods of times. This wasn't the end of like a 30-second squeeze. It was just about to get started, and she taps immediately as it's beginning, and Eggers gets submission. You hear the commentator saying, oh, you know, Eggers doesn't really have much time here, and I thought, I'm still looking at tapology. Like, she gets submitted here? How is this going to, you know? So let's be honest. Let's call a spade a spade, because if it walks like a duck and clacks, you know, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And if you tap out in that situation like that with, like, you didn't even try to fight it, and you also didn't try to, like, survive it. I'm going to call it out. Perez showed very little heart there. And I wonder, I question her heart. All this jumping around on the stage and twerking. She had all that energy pre-fight. All that energy day before on stage. Put on a show for everyone. Is that just, you know, all a facade? Because when you get to the octagon, you're actually just kind of playing games. I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. If you go back and watch this fight that she fought against Eggers, there's a lot to be desired. And I thought she did a terrible job out there. Did not look good. On the feet, had some power punches, but lacks volume. Accuracy is not great. She's usually just trying to get in on, on a clinch and work it to the ground. I'll tell you what, though. Regardless of the outcome, we're going to get some entertainment here from Perez. I'm sure she'll do some dancing around or whatever. And if you like your females thick on the lower end, she will satisfy the bill. She's not terribly bad to look at, too. She's got some nice facial features. 
I'm sure if you dress her up and put her in the right outfit, she'll look pretty good. <laughs> anyway, let's finish the breakdown of this fight. We went a little bit too long. So we, we are a bit hesitant. Oh, excuse me. My dog is barking in the background. We are a bit hesitant to fade Cowan here because of the matchup. I kind of just went through the details of our concern with Perez. But we're going to stick to the rule here. When we saw Cohen at Cowan, excuse me, at Contender Series, we told ourselves, very next fight, she fights someone, we're going to fade her. The only caveat would be like if it was a complete can. Perez is not a complete can. She's, she's actually got some ability, and we have big questions about Cowan. So, with that said, here's the betting spots that we like for this fight. The fight going over two and a half rounds at minus 195. A little chalky, but still a spot we may use for a parlay piece. Fight goes the distance at minus 160. Priced a little bit better. We like that more, and it's still a spot we might parlay. Perez by decision at plus 240. You know, at this point, you may not want to be greedy. If you just take Perez to win the fight outright, you're getting her at plus 115. You'd hate for her to win the fight, let's say, by a submission somehow. And then you end up like, oh, Jesus, you know. You might want to sprinkle that prop, by the way, the submission prop. I've heard some smart people talking about her winning by submission. Again, it's not really on her resume. Um, but she's working on it, and she's done her full camp MMA's Masters, and there's whispers out there. She's getting good on the ground, so on and so on. And last but not least, the split decision props. If they're they're not available yet, I'd give I'd give the numbers right now if they were. But if you find them at some point pre-fight, just you know put ten bucks on each side because these are the kind of fights, female fights. It gets greasy, it gets close. Cowan just came off of a split decision. You know, some fighters are split decision prone, and maybe she's one of them, and it's a female fight, so on and so on. So I'm going to sprinkle that prop. That's your breakdown for Haley Cowan versus Aileen Perez. I'm looking forward to it myself. I actually you know, prefer some female fights every now and then. I think last weekend we had one women's fight the entire card. This one has multiple female fights. So I'm looking forward to it. That's your breakdown. Guys, good luck with this fight. All right, next up in the prelim card, we have a lightweight bout at 155 pounds between Nerulo Aliyev versus Rafael Alves. Mr. Alves goes by the turn. He's 20 and 11 overall, up against the undefeated Tajikistan fighter, who's also um, looks just like Khabib Magomedov. I'm just going to put it out there. He looks so much like Khabib. We'll talk about that in a second, but we'll give you the pick to start off. The pick that we have to win the fight is Aliyev by decision at plus 200. If you just take a quick peek at his topology, the dude is a decisionator and makes sense. He's, you know, grappler, but doesn't have great submission ability, control. He does fight like, you know, a baby Khabib, does look a little like him, even has, you know, physical features like him, not, you know, very broad anywhere, throws really untechnical punches over his head and goes in for takedowns constantly and grabs the legs and it's kind of funny, and um, but he's not from Dagestan. He's not Russian. He's from Tajikistan, not terribly far from the same area of the world. Anyway, some basics in these two fighters here. Aliyev, who goes by Tajik Eagle. There you go. Another similarity to the Eagle, Khabib Namagomedov. The Tajik Eagle, undefeated, 8-0, 23 years young. Wow, so young. 5'10", 72-inch reach out of Kaizen MMA. Also has, a, looks a little like Mohamed, uh, um, Mokayev, right? Mokayev looks a little like him too. Well, you got that bearded strap, the dark beard and the strap and the hair. And you know, it just looks like those guys, those Dagestani knuckle gang guys. Rafael Alves, the turn, bit of a veteran. 31 total fights, 20 and 11 overall. He's the slight dog in this matchup out of Para Brazil, 32 years old. 5'8", high with a 68 inch reach. And he trains out of MMA Masters, another fighter on the roster from MMA Masters. So here's the thing. We've got obviously about a 10-year age difference. I don't think Rafael is too old by any means, 
but he's approaching let's say the last let's three four years of his potential you know run in the ufc or mixed martial arts in general you got baby aliyev over here just breaking in hasn't fought anyone of substance doesn't have much decision ability will have to go ahead and manhandle a grown man at 32 years old and look let's put it i'm not being not joking here but aliyev at 23 hasn't even got his grown man strength yet, right? Whereas Alves is fully in grown man mode. So this is not going to be easy task for Alves. I think he still wins the fight, but more than likely by decision. Let me read the breakdown here for you. So this fight offers the perfect opportunity to take an intermission break, by the way. I do want to put it out there. If you're watching the fight, you get to this fight right here, Alves versus Alves. You get up, you refill your drink, you grab a snack. You use the little boy's room. You do all those different things. You, you pack a fresh bowl. You go outside. You have a cigarette. You know, you, you, you text your girlfriend. Do the different things you have to do because it's going to be constant hugging. Ali is going to be hugging Alvarez the entire time, 15 minutes of it, probably no blood, probably nothing eventful, and Ali will win. We mentioned the co comparisons to Khabib. People complain at the end of his career, oh, he's boring, just grapples and... Yeah, that's Aliyev. That's what he does. That's what's going to happen here. Alves will have three rounds of just trying to keep this monkey off of him to try to keep some distance to make it a different fight. So Aliyev invokes a lot of the Khabib vibes. You know, he's got the 8-0 undefeated record, physical similarities, fighting style. Way too early to compare him to Khabib, though. Like, we can't do that. Like, we're just saying he looks a little bit like him. He's a relentless wrestler. He goes after first takedown, doesn't get it. Second takedown, he's coming. Let's say Alves defends all the takedowns in round one and maybe even wins round one, right? Well, when this guy comes back out in round two, Aliyev, he's going right back to it. He's going to keep going and Alves will eventually make a mistake. His cardio will be tested. And I think at this point with this young 23-year-old whippersnapper against you know, a 31, 32-year-old fighter who's been through it, 31 fights, I think at some point, even if he does win round one, we get into round two, round three, that continuous pressure, that continuously trying to get takedowns is going to eventually it's going to work for him. And I think once that happens, Aliyev's going to be on top and will not, Elvis, not let Alves back up. I almost called him Elvis. Now, Alves is a balanced fighter with excellent jiu-jitsu skills. In comparison to Aliyev, he's definitely fought the much better competition. Unfortunately, he does come into this fight off of a knockout loss at the hands of Drew Dober in his last fight. And Dober's pretty good. Dober's got finishing ability. But that's the last fight he fought. He's 500 level in his last four fights. He's 2-2 two two in his last four fights. So not a great stretch there. Durability is also becoming a concern. He's been finished in six of his 11 defeats. And Aliyev is, known for finish Aliyev is not known for finishing ability. So I don't think that's going to be an issue for Alves in this fight. But just putting it out there, he has been finished quite a bit. I'm thinking Alves comes out early, looks decent. You know, like his, his striking should be better than Aliyev. I think he's going to be better on the feet. He'll be fresh. He defends some of the takedowns. I think if he gets taken down, he gets back up early. You know, we, we see some of that. But then I think the fatigue sets in. I think at the end of round one, we start seeing it. I think more into round two. And that's going to be what the fight comes down to. Who has the better cardio? So as long as this young fighter, Norolo Aliyev, can avoid from like getting knocked out early on or getting stung by a hard punch from Alves, and Alves does have power, if he could do that for the first round especially, I think he cruises at that point to just a a victory, not going to be pretty, not going to be exciting, not going to be anyone getting knocked out or even submitted, but cruising, you know, boring, boring win. Now, I will say this. If he keeps fighting that way, it's going to cost him because ultimately the big boss, man, wants excitement. 
if he doesn't start getting more submissions, you know, he'll be on the roster, but he'll be in prelim cards like this, and he's not going to get a lot of opportunities. So, you know what I mean? Now, side note for you guys, this is the Apex, smaller cage, with two people that grapple a lot. <laughs> There's not going to be any distance to run or create space. This fight hits the ground pretty quickly, probably, and plays out on the ground for most of three rounds. You just hope someone does something exciting, and we do get a finish, but probably won't happen. The betting spots we like the most for this fight are the fight going over a round and a half at minus 225. The fight starts round three, which that prop price is not out yet. Aliyev by decision at plus 200, and Alves by KO at plus 425. Not sure if I'll play that Alves KO. I'm just mentioning it to you guys. Some more details of these two fighters. Aliyev is right-handed, averaging 6.52 strikes per minute, very high rate, and absorbing 0.65. It is a small sample size. Taking down his opponent 3.26 times per 15 minutes. Again, small sample size. He's had 10 total fights. Undefeated record, good wrestler, only 23 years old. Our concerns for him, activity hasn't been very active. Fights like once a year for a young fighter, you'd think he should fight more often. He is young, how he responds to the big stage, fighting across the world. He's a bit one-dimensional. Finishing ability, not there. And his UFC debut, he's making it in this fight. So all those different factors, maybe we'll see what happens, how he responds. As for Rafael Alves, 32 years old, coming out of a good gym, MMA Masters, he's also right-handed. Average fight time, nine minutes and three seconds. He's a wrestler, averaging 2.46 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.14. That blew me away. I'm glad I went over these, these numbers with you. So... Big time negative striking ratio, and I had to like take a double take. I didn't realize Jafia Alves had that kind of terrible, basically, stand-up defense. I don't think it's a factor here because, again, he's not fighting a guy who's a boxer. He's fighting a wrestler, right? For takedown numbers for Alves, he averages 0.41 takedowns per 15 minutes. I had to double check my, my vision there. So, like, no takedowns. Good at submissions, but not good at taking it down. Takedown defense, 60%. That number's going down after this fight. You can be assured of that. And total fights, 31 total fights. What does he do well? He's got six submissions on his record. I mean, 31 fights, six submissions, you know, just whatever. It's it's probably his more, most likely way of finishing a fight, put it that way. He doesn't have a high finish rate. He's four fights in the UFC compared to this young kid coming in, making a debut. That does matter. I mean, that's four times the amount of experience at a very high level. So if you like Alves to win, that's one of the reasons why you're leaning towards him. And the grappling skills. He's got good jiu-jitsu. He doesn't have good take on defense, I mean offense, but if he gets to the ground, he can handle himself and has good also submission defense. His experience, he obviously has more experience, 31 fights compared to eight. I'm not a mathematician, but I believe that's like around two to three times the amount, right? Now, our concerns for Rafael Alves, number one, doesn't have much KO power. He has one TKO career in his entire, I mean, one TKO in his entire career. I was shocked. I'm like, dude just never knocks anyone out. Some submissions, yes, but no TKOs. Consistency. He's two and two in his last four fights. It's like back and forth. Is he due for a win or a loss here? Durability. He's been he's been finished in six of his eleven defeats in the negative striking ratio, which we mentioned before. So, those are some bullet points on these two fighters. But um, I see Aliyev coming in and winning. Now, if you're one of the people who bet on Hussein last week, right, Askabov, or if you bet on Tugagov a few weeks ago, you're probably feeling like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing any of these. You know, Middle Eastern, Russian, doggy, undefeated, non nah, 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 nonsense out there. You know, undefeated 8-0 against a bunch of who, nobodies, right? I get you. But I, I watched the film on Aliyev just like we had watched the film on Hussein and told people to stay away from him last week too and to go off the week before. 
we watched the film on this this cat. He 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 looks pretty legit. These kind of fighters that are so grappling heavy, like a Mokayev, good cardio and grapple the shit out of you. It's hard to beat them unless you have also very good defense and also very good cardio. You might win a round, but at some point, it's just like it's like throwing shit at the wall. At some point, it's going to stick. Some of it will stick. A lot of it's going to slide on the wall. But this kid comes out here at 23 years old with a high-ass motor and a high gas tank. Whatever success Alves has early on is going to whittle away. And then at some point, I see Aliyev pressuring enough of the pace and taking this to the ground, being on top, chewing the clock up, and winning the fight. He's got the, he's got the stuff. He's got the stuff. So that's our breakdown, guys. We'd like Aliyev to win the fight by decision. If you want to get our full bet tip sheet for this card, like we do for all of our cards, all you got to do is subscribe to our Substack newsletter. The link is down below. Make sure you do that. Full tip sheet, full breakdowns available. Nothing is paid for for free, for free, for free. No no joke. And uh, our full tip sheet's there with our parlays, our prop bets, the whole nine. Because in these breakdown videos, we give you the betting spots we like. We discuss, obviously, who we do like. But we don't actually give you the specifics on who we're going to be betting on. Because full lines don't come out until later. After the video has been published, we want to make sure we sit down, we talk, we we have a staff meeting, we go over all different ideas, and then we come up with a nice full tip sheet for you guys. But that tip sheet's available in two spaces. It's or two places, excuse me, available via our Substack newsletter. Subscribe to that. Or if you go down low or go down low, go down below and look in the description there, but on you will find a link for our Substack. I'm sorry, our, our Google Drive. On our Google Drive, you will have links there for a variety of different things. But one of them will be a folder, for example, for UFC um, Vegas 70. And then there's an Excel sheet with all the different information we're talking about. There's fighter breakdowns. There's links to prior fights. So on and so on. I can talk about this forever. The point is, we like Ali have to win the fight by decision. We're confident on it. At minus 170-ish or minus 180 range, we'll be taking a, a piece of that straight up and also probably parlaying it. That's our breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we have a lightweight bout, 155 pounds between Carl Deaton III, American fighter out of Las Vegas, versus Joe Selecki from Wilmington, North Carolina. Two American fighters. Before we get into the breakdown, I'll tell you right now, we like Selecki to win the fight. That's probably not a surprise. Most people like him to win. He's like minus 520 on the money line. But specifically by round one submission, that's our prediction. Some basic information on these two fighters. Selecki's 12-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. Big favorite here. Again, out of North Carolina, 29 years old, 5'9 in height with a 70-inch reach. Height and reach-wise, about a 3-inch height advantage there for Selecki. And then about a 2-3-inch to three inch reach advantage for Selecki. I'm not sure that plays out as a huge benefit. It's nice to be the bigger fighter, but Joe Selecki is a very balanced fighter, and I don't see him as a big-time boxer, put it that way. I think it helps him just being the larger guy, but I don't think it's going to be a significant uh, you know, factor in this fight. As for Selecki, trains out of Jim O and Salty Dog Jiu-Jitsu. For Carl Deaton III, 17 and 5 overall, a little more experience. 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. Big underdog here. Out of Las Vegas, where he trains out of, well, it says he trains out of American Top Team, according to his profile, along with Academy MN, but that might be outdated. Sometimes tapology is not correct. He may not even be in Las Vegas anymore because ATT is obviously not in Las Vegas. <laughs> anyway, for Deaton, he's 33 years old, 5'6 in height with a 67-inch reach. So again, reach and height, the advantage goes towards the side of Selecki. According to the public votes and tapology, by no surprise, only 4% coming in for Deaton, 96% coming in for Selecki. This will be a short and sweet breakdown for you guys. I'm not going to spend too much time in it. The one thing I do want to focus on is how do you bet a fight when it's minus 520? 
We'll talk about that. So Lucky by round one submission is to prediction. This might be the most lopsided fight on the card. Deaton III is making his UFC debut. And to be brutally honest with you, we aren't sure or how he got signed by the UFC. We're just not sure how or why. We didn't see the, the, the reasoning rationale other than the fact they just need bodies, right? Deaton is 2-2 two two in his last four fights with a loss in a promotion called Big John's MMA. I apologize. That's my dog back here chewing on his, his chew toy. Thank you, buddy. I, I appreciate your input. Okay, so Deaton's 2-2 two two in his last four fights with a loss in a promotion called Big John's MMA. He has a decision win over Justin Janes just last year. Janes went 1-4 in the UFC before getting cut. Deaton's last fight was a submission win over a 7-9 and nine fighter in a promotion called WXC. You kind of see where I'm going here. He is decent overall as a fighter. He won't lay down for Selecki. He's going to put up a fight, but there's a huge step up in competition for Deaton. Deaton has fought no one in the same realm as Selecki. If he's going the distance with fighters like Justin Janes... <laughs> He's going to have his hands full with Selecki. That's all I'm going to say. Justin Janes, no offense, but if that guy's going to distance here with Carl Deaton, then he's going to have his hands full with Selecki. The difference in skill level is going to be apparent probably right away. You'll see right away. Like, one guy belongs, one guy doesn't. Selecki earned his way to the UFC via a, one, a round one submission on Contender Series 2019. A lot of the fighters on this card, by the way, have Contender Series experience. Like, I'd say 80 to 90% of the fighters on this card have some type of Contender Series experience, which... Great for the UFC, right? Since winning on Contender Series 2019, he's gone 4-1 with his only defeat by a split decision to Gordon. Gordon's a tough fighter. So Lucky's a multi-dimensional fighter with medium output. 2.54 strikes per minute is what he lands. He averages 2.44 takedowns per fight, though, which represents his balance skill level and what he likes to do. He's best known for his submission skills. Seven of his 12 wins are by submission. If Selecki can't secure a submission, he can score points, try and get back control, one of the scorecards that way. Given the strong start to Selecki's career, why is the UFC matching him up with a UFC first-timer on the premiums of a weak card? Let me ask that question again. Given the strong start to Selecki's career, a guy who looks like he could be a very promising you know, uh, 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 prospect, why is the UFC giving him a weak matchup on the prelim card for a weak card in general? And I just I don't know the answer to it. I mean, is the, are they just trying to build him up and give him some more wins like under the radar? Because Carl Deaton... It's not the level of Selecki. And if you're Selecki, this doesn't help your rankings, right? You can't move up in the rankings fighting guys that are way down below you. So I'm not really sure what the idea here is. I guess if you're Selecki, a win's a win, another belt, another um, uh, a payday, but it just seems like not a good matchup for him in terms of moving forward with his career. For Deaton, you just take whatever you can get, right? Also, here's another thought. Here's what one thought I did have. Is the UFC trying to minimize Selecki's value because they're in the midst of a contract negotiation? Like, don't put it past them. They've done it before. They did it with Nate Diaz. Like, his contract's coming up, like, listen, we'll put him on the premium card. Give him some nobody. We're not going to, you know, boost up his value now when we're getting ready to re renegotiate a new contract, right? I don't know. I don't know. But there's something about it that just doesn't make sense. We can't quite put our finger on it. So, Lecky should be facing a better opponent. That's just our opinion. All that said, he should win this fight with ease. The betting spots we like the most of this fight. So, how, how do you bet on this fight with it being minus 500, right? Don't just parlay Selecki. That's a lazy way of betting on this fight. Will we parlay him maybe into one parlay? Yes, but don't overdo it. It's a lazy way to play it. Here's the spots you might want to think about here. The fight not going the distance. I don't know what that's priced at right now. Let me look it up because those numbers have been kind of just coming out. The fight not going the distance is minus 180. There you go. Selecki is priced at a point where he should finish this opponent. He's got the submission skills to do it, and I believe he does. I believe he does in round one. But at minus 180, he got the whole 15 minutes for him to finish the fight. Love me that spot. Selecki by submission. 
Again, these props are just coming out now, so maybe I can actually look up some of this stuff. Nope, that's not available. So submit, by submission, and then the over a round and a half, which is currently sitting at minus 160. If Carl Deaton is worth anything, he can get at least an over a round and a half. That's minus 160. But the spot I like the most there is to fight, again, not with the distance. We may take a shot at Selecki by submission in round one or two or three, something like that. Not sure yet. Make sure you subscribe to our Substack newsletter to get our full tip sheet so you know exactly what we're betting on before the fight. But not much more to talk about. I didn't do a very deep dive in this fight specifically because we have ourselves a situation where we have a fighter who's much better. And ultimately, we're going to just kind of waste time paralysis by analysis looking deeper and deeper into these two fighters. When we know clearly what Selecki could do, and it seems to be quite obvious, the, the you know, UFC is trying to fill spots in the roster. Here's the point I want to make. Someone asked, like, why are they putting together weak cards? Why don't they just combine, like, the last two weeks together, do one good card? Well, here's a really obvious reason why. UFC has a contract with ESPN to put on a certain amount of events per year. And it's something, it's it's up there. It's like, I don't know, 28, 30, it's something up there. Not the pay-per-view events. I think all the events combined, right, under the ESPN banner. And so they have to do this. What we just saw the last weekend and what we're going to see again this weekend is probably not the best of the UFC's roster, they just have to fill the spots. They just need to fill spots. And so in this case, Carl Deaton, sign him up. He's coming in here. Last weekend was what, Juan Camilo Ronderos? Hadn't fought in a long time. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're seeing guys that probably usually wouldn't be in the UFC according to their standards, but because we have fights almost every weekend and they have to have, you know, fill spots, here we have a fighter like Carl Deaton. And quite frankly, Selecki's going to win this fight going away very easily. But just one last warning do not over parlay him because you're not getting a lot of value either way. And at minus 500 range, it becomes. A trap. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. All right, let's keep it rolling up the card. Flyweight bout, 125 pounds between Ode Osborne, the Jamaican sensation, versus Charles Energy Johnson. I communicated with Charles recently, trying to get him set up for an interview, and um, seems like a pretty cool guy. He's based out of Thailand. As we communicated, it's like he's almost 12 hours difference from me so quite interesting anyway let's get to the particulars on this fight i'll give you the choice right now who we like to win get out the way for you charles johnson inside the distance that is our prediction i feel pretty good about it too now charles is sitting at minus 170 Ode osborne plus 145 at least as of monday evening tuesday morning uh, i love the line because i do like charles johnson and now he's been super active recently we'll talk about that Ode osborne up in town his last four five six seven fights we'll talk about that as well as for the particulars mr osborne 11 and 5 overall three and two in his last five fights out of milwaukee wisconsin of course via jamaica 31 years old five foot seven in height with a 72 inch reach let's talk height and reach for a second two inch advantage in reach for ode osborne excuse me yes in reach and then about two inch height advantage for charles i don't imagine it's a big factor they both fight well at range they're both good strikers I don't think the reach is going to be a factor or the height. These guys are very similar, by the way. Ode Osborne comes out of Syndicate MMA. They have an army of fighters coming out of Syndicate MMA. You, you can't watch a PFL, shit, Bellator, any major promotion. There's someone on that fight card that's from Syndicate. Uh, you know, just a great... And by the way, Syndicate is in Los Angeles. So it's, you know, it's a good place, good location. Very convenient for some of the athletes. Anyway, Charles Johnson... 13-3 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, out of Missouri, 32 years old, 5-9, 70-inch reach, trains out of Taga Muay out of Thailand. Now, as for the public votes on Tapology, interesting. Okay, so the voting on Tapology supports Johnson quite a bit. 84% compared to only 16% for Osborne. 
that's more like what I'm thinking. I, I don't have, you know, any beef with Oz, Ode Osborne. He's a good dude. I mean, seems to be a happy-go-lucky guy, decent fighter. But uh, Charles, to me, is the more – he's just better. Okay, he's just better. I could try to make it complicated, just to give you a bunch of crazy words to describe why he's better. He's just simply better. Let's go into the breakdown. Regardless of who wins the fight, we're very likely to see it, a finish of some kind. They both have very high finish rates, as we'll get to. Now, Odie Osborne comes to this fight off of a round one knockout loss to Tyson Nam. Prior to that, he had won two in a row over Adeshev and CJ Vergara, both quality opponents, mind you. We saw CJ Vergara fight not too long ago, looking pretty good, holding his own in the UFC. Now, Odie is an explosive athlete with a balanced skill set. He sports a high finish rate. He's finished six of his uh, seven wins, so only one of his fights that he's won, he has not finished his opponent. Unfortunately, consistency has been the Achilles heel for Odie. He's 3-3 three three in his last six fights. We're also concerned about his durability. He was finished in round one of all three of his most recent defeats. So his last three losses, which are within the last six fights, he got knocked out or finished in round one. He's got a competitive, he's competitive against average competition, but when we get him against fighters that are like Manel Kopp, Tyson Nam, Brian Kelleher, he struggled. I think we've got enough of a sample size to at least figure out where's Odie Osborne at this point in his career. Now, two years from now, he's 31, 32, 33. He makes some improvements. At this very point, he's a guy who's having a hard time breaking through that proverbial you know, glass ceiling. As for Charles Johnson, he's probably the most active fighter in the UFC that you haven't heard of. This will mark his third fight in the last four months. So he's averaging like, you know, five, six weeks between camps or between fights. He finished his last fight in the first round and took little to no damage. That was against Jimmy Flick back in January. He has an advantage in almost every category. He has the higher fighter IQ, and he's fought in several high-profile fights already. So he's kind of been in this spot, you know what I mean? Additionally, he trains at one of the best gyms in the world. So we mentioned Tiger Muay Thai, and we mentioned uh, the gym over in Vegas that Odie's at, Syndicate. It cannot be understated here. We're talking about, there's fighters in UFC, for example, who when they go back home to wherever home is at, they go to the local gym where they're the biggest fish in the, in the pond. There's maybe one guy in the gym who helps them out and coaches them, who's known them for a long time, maybe a friend type of thing. And you're like, why do they do that? Well, because picking up and moving halfway around the world, like Charles Johnson has done, it, it's not always, it's not for everybody. <laughs> okay. And if you don't know, the, the guys who live in Tiger Muay Thai, a lot of them live like in a camp setting, meaning like they're like dorm room setting type of situation. So it's not luxurious. You know, they're not living on the beach with, beautiful house and kids and a family they're making like a trek and a mission so my point is when you see syndicate mma when you see att when you see tiger muay thai these are the serious most you know uh accomplished platforms to get better at the sport we've seen that and that's why so many great fighters are in those uh, those environments so for charles johnson he made that trek and same for Odie osborne and to some extent it's paying off right so anyway charles johnson super duper busy yeah, four, three fights in four months, right? So pound for pound, we think Charles is simply the better fighter. We see Charles fighting a finish somewhere in the second half of the fight. So somewhere after a round and a half, he finds a finish. Could be a submission, could be a knockout. The betting spots we like the most of this fight are the over a round and a half. Fight does not go the distance. Johnson on the money line as a parlay piece. And then Johnson into the distance. Just a few more numbers for you guys. Ode is a southpaw. Average fight time, four minutes, 31 seconds. He lands 4.84 strikes per minute, unfortunately absorbing about five per minute, so he has a negative striking ratio. Kind of surprised me. I don't think of Odie Osborne as having bad defense. The numbers are the numbers. 
Ode lands about one takedown per fight. Not an extremely active wrestler, and if you watched him fight, he's more flashy, jumping, flying knees, kicks and whatnot. He's got a kickboxing style. His takedown defense is 66%. That's, you know, that's in that, that's a, it's an okay range. Could that be tested here by Johnson? It depends on how Johnson wants to fight. Johnson can keep a balanced approach. He can, he can use a heavy wrestling approach. It's up to him. We'll see what happens there. We'll see if that number gets tested or if it improves, right? If Johnson goes for an early takedown and says, you know, I'm okay there, Ode defends it. Ode has fought 22 total mixed martial arts fights when you combine everything, exhibitions, amateur, the whole nine. What does he do well? Well, athletic, good finish rate. Again, six of his seven wins are by finish, and he has the win over CJ Vergara, which is age well. Our concerns for Odie Osborne, inconsistent. He's a 500-level fighter over the last two, three years, over the last six fights. Tougher opponents. He doesn't do well against guys like Kelleher, guys like Tyson Nam, guys like Manel Kopp. That's been his, you know, glass ceiling. And then durability. I mentioned it before. Been finished in three of his last uh, six fights, and he got finished, I believe, in round one. Two subs and a KO. Excuse me. <clears throat> he's also been finished in four of his total five fights that he's lost, so... Durability is definitely a question there for my man Ode. Johnson, last few details on him. 32, switch stance fighter. That's important because even though Ode is a southpaw, Johnson's able to fight both ways. It gives Johnson that slight advantage to change his stance. Average fight time, 11 minutes and 31 seconds. So Charles Johnson is going deeper into his fights. And my thinking here is that he's the one who's going to lead the dance, so to say. If he's doing that, this fight goes a little longer. He's, he's patient. He's not somebody's going to go in there and try to, you know, beat you up right away, jump all over you. He tends to be a little bit more, you know, not, I shouldn't say patient. He's calculated. He makes adjustments. And as he makes those adjustments, I think he finds the advantages over Ode. But you see 11, 30 minutes, 11 minutes, 31 seconds, fight time. He's going deep into second, third round. Strikes landed per minute for Johnson, 4.66. Pretty good output, about the same as Ode. Landing. I'm sorry, absorbing 3.99. So as a positive striking ratio, I'd like to see him improve those numbers, though. He's absorbing four per minute, output 4.66. You can see how that, in a close fight, could not go your way. And next thing you know, you're losing a split decision, right? Takedowns per minute, zero for Charles Johnson. That surprised me. He is a good wrestler, but he's also the kind of guy where he could get to a scrambling situation, be on the bottom, reverse, so on and so on. And he has 57% takedown defense. So both guys have around 57, 60% takedown defense. We'll see what happens there. We'll see if that becomes a factor. And for Johnson, he's fought 27 total mixed martial arts fights. Finish rate. You love that about Johnson. He's got finishes in his last six wins, four of them. Four of his last six wins have been finishes. So recently has a good finish rate. Quality win over Zalgas by split decision last year in November. Super active the last few months. Training at an amazing gym. His grappling skills are on point. Our concerns for him. His grappling skills are good. And then go watch him fight Mokayev. <laughs> Mokayev mauled him. So you can have good grappling skills. Then there's elite grappling skills. I don't believe Ode poses an elite grappling skill threat here. Just putting it out there. When it comes to grappling, Johnson looks good in the LFAs and, you know, against <clears throat> some other guys that can't do it so well. But against Mokayev, he got shredded. And then volume. At times, I do believe that Charles can be patient to a fault, looking for the perfect shot. Too much circling and you know in close fights this could be a close fight you get a little worried about that uh fighting approach that's your breakdown boys and girls we do like Ode osborne to win the fight just a reminder if you're looking for our specific bet on this fight please go ahead and follow our substack newsletter it's free to subscribe to the links down below you enter your email you subscribe totally free there's no paywalls there's no patreon there's no 
like annual membership, no monthly fee, nothing. You get a full write-up. So what you're hearing here in this video breakdown, you'll get it in a full write-up format right to your email. If you don't want to use it or if you don't want to open in your email, you can use the Substack app on your phone. And that Substack app, it's right there in your phone. You can open it. You can read part of the breakdown, come back to it on Tuesday or Wednesday when you're laying down in bed, taking your time. But in that newsletter, Substack newsletter, you also get a full tip sheet. All of our bets for the entire card. So individual bets, prop bets, parlays, a few specials we'd like to include. That's all included in our newsletter. Also in the newsletter is a link to like this breakdown video, a link to our Google Drive where you have access to our Excel sheet that gives you a film library, more fighter stats and comparisons, along with the fighter breakdown notes. So as I'm reading to you some of this breakdown as we're going through it, I'm looking at the raw fight breakdown notes that are available on Google Drive, which you can access yourself. Gives you again more stats, a deeper dive. It's not for everyone, but for those who have the extra time and maybe want to do a little more research and looking at the fight coming up, we're saving you hundreds of hours, not kidding you, hundreds of hours of time by putting all this together for you in a few simple spots. But subscribe to the Substack newsletter. It becomes like your main portal to getting everything because in that newsletter, you'll receive a link to the Google Drive, a link to the Excel sheet, a reminder that all of this is available also via our podcast. If you're a podcast type of listener, look MMA Fight Club up wherever you get your podcasts and what you're hearing right now will probably be available right there in the next episode. We try to upload pretty much all of our content from YouTube to our podcast. Okay, enough talking about that. That was my promo spot. But if you want the tip sheet, like I said, for all the fights we're talking about here on this card, totally free, available. Comes out usually on Tuesday, Wednesday at the latest. We're just waiting for those last few lines to come out, especially like split decision props, which we like to play so much. But once it comes out, we hammer out that tip sheet for you. We put it up on the Substack newsletter. We attach it to the actual newsletter breakdown. It's all right there. You get one or two emails a week from us, not invasive. Subscribe today, free. If you've never heard of Substack, it's a great platform, totally free platform. You can download the app, so on and so on. But the link for subscribing to our newsletter is down below. Do that right now. Let's move on. Here we go. Okay, next up we have a lightweight bout, 155 pounds between the American Jordan Levitt, who goes by the Monkey King, versus another American fighter, Victor Martinez, who goes by the Brick. I'll give you the pick real quick to get out of the way. We like a round two submission win by Jordan Levitt. Could happen in round one, more likely in round two. That is our pick to win the fight. As for the basic information of these two fighters, Levitt is 10 and two overall, three and two in his last five fights out of Las Vegas, 27 years old, five foot nine high with a 71 inch reach. Height wise, about the same, one inch height advantage for Levitt and about a one inch advantage as, as well for Levitt and reach. Reach wise, it's not a big factor. Levitt's not much of a striker as we're gonna talk about. For Victor Martinez, who goes by the brick, 13 and four overall, five in his last five fights, one on contender series about two years ago, a year and a half making his UFC debut out of Texas, 31 years old, 5'8 in height with a 70-inch reach, and out of Team Ferreira. For Levitt, he's out of Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas. Very good gym. and doesn't have to go very far, right, because this fight's being held in Las Vegas. Okay, as for our write-up in this fight, we like Levitt to win the fight by round two submission. We're usually the first people to fade Levitt, not because of anything personal. He's just such a one-dimensional fighter, and we have faded him in recent fights, and it worked out. The thing is, though, this matchup is not just about the one dimension. You know, he's really nasty in the ground, good grappling, but he's fighting a fighter who's making a debut and kind of didn't really win the last fight, in our opinion. And so we feel like the experience advantage is on the side of Levitt and should allow him to find his way to a victory. Now, Victor, who's making his UFC debut, fought on Contender Series 2021 
in September 2021, so about a year and a half ago. He originally was supposed to fight Levitt last year, but he backed up the fight. Not sure why, must have been an injury. So here we are now, a year and a half since his last fight. We're a little skeptical about what to expect from the guy. It's been a long layoff. Has the injury situation, was it uh, was it worse than what maybe he thought initially? I mean, it's a long layoff for an injury, so we're trying to figure out what's going on here. And it just leaves us kind of with some red flags and also just some open-ended questions that we really can't answer. Now, as for his win on Contender Series, I'm willing to debate that win. I don't think he won the fight. Uh, round one, he definitely drops round one because he gets knocked down in round one by his opponent, and the rest of the round is not even even. He's getting tagged up in round one, so he loses round one. And it almost gets stopped, by the way, in round one. So it's clearly he lost round one. Round two, halfway through round two, there's no way you're going to tell me he's winning round two. No way. Halfway through round two, he's definitely behind. He then lands, Victor, that is, a few flurries, nothing too crazy, doesn't hurt his opponent. And we go to round three. After the fight, they go to the scorecards. Every judge gave him round two. I, I don't know how, but they did. Round three, they come out. It's a close round, but his opponent is the one coming forward the entire time. And Victor's the one backing up off his back foot the entire time. Mind you, his opponent has a broken right hand and is unable to throw a single punch with his right hand the entire third round. So his opponent is coming forward, his lead hand, a left hand jab, just doing whatever he can, throwing kicks and throwing more volume. And I thought his opponent won the third round. Whatever, dude. I, I thought his opponent won every round. So here comes Victor off of that win. By decision, that's how he finds himself into the UFC. I think it's convenient. I think he was fortunate. <laughs> Basically borderline very lucky. Um, because I don't think he won that fight. And quite frankly, now he's in a spot where he's about to go up against a guy who, at very least, say what you want about say about Jordan, but you know he does belong in the UFC. He's got a skill set that's limited in some areas, but he has some wins in the UFC. He's got some mission skills and so on and so on. One more thing about Martinez. Has a reputation of giving up his back, and he did it very early on in round one of his contender series fight. If he gives his back up to Levitt, sleep, sleep. Night, night. It's going to be over. Levitt is very good at submissions. Martinez cannot give up his back. As for Mr. Levitt, we know about him a little bit. Been on the scene now for a few years. He's got absolute zero stand-up fighting skills. I could make an argument that someone like Shevchenko can probably outbox him. Like straight up in a boxing match on the feet, she probably tags him up because <laughs> he's got absolutely no stand-up boxing skills at all. And I'm not kidding about a female fighter boxing him and probably beating him up. I'm not kidding about that. What saves him is he's got a very elite grappling skill set. The challenge for him is doing the wrestling part. His wrestling's getting better. He's not an amazing wrestler, so he needs to get the fight to the wheelhouse, right, to work on his grappling and find a submission. That's the part of his game he's got to make some improvements on. Striking-wise... I don't think it's possible to make any improvements. He, he literally looks like a fish out of water. He appears sometimes when he's throwing strikes as if he's never hit a bag before in his life. It's the weirdest thing you could ever imagine because he's in the UFC. He's a professional fighter. He does this for a living. And all joking aside, it looks like he's never hit a bag before. It's just, uh, it's an awkward thing. <laughs> okay. Now, all that said, his experience, his grappling skills, and strength of schedule those are the reasons why we're picking him to win. At minus 105, pick up money odds, we're on Levitt here. We, we like him to win the fight. If he does get a submission, it's hard to see him winning like a, a striking battle, right? That's not really in his wheelhouse. He doesn't have good striking. His volume is very low. But over the course of three rounds, we should see a mistake at some point. 
by Martinez. And when the mistake happens, Levis should be right there to capitalize. The mistake could just be fighting the wrong hand and or not fighting hands on a rear naked choke. And next thing you know, we find Levitt with a submission win. So we like Levitt here quite a bit. It's a good spot. There's some good return there at minus 105. The spots we like the most for this fight, Levitt by submission, Levitt by round two submission, and Levitt on the money line. Because Martinez won his fight, his last fight by decision, a fight that I didn't think he won, I still may sprinkle that prop there just for good riddance or maybe as a hedge piece. It's plus 280 right now. It's not great. But because we're so high on Levitt, we'll end up playing him straight up and some props as well by submissions as well. We'll also probably end up sprinkling Martinez as a way to hedge our bet. That's your breakdown for this. Kind of short and sweet. We think Jordan Levitt wins this fight walking away by submission. Round one, round two, round two specifically what we're calling it. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Okay, moving up the card, next fight's going to be a flyweight battle between two female fighters at 125 pounds, Gabriela Fernandez from Brazil versus Jasmine Jasso-DeVicious from Canada. Before we get into a deep dive with you guys here, we'll give you our pick. If you like Jasmine Jasso-DeVicious to win this fight by decision, that prop is sitting at plus 180 currently. Lines are just coming out. That's going to move around probably a little bit. But we like Jasmine to win the fight by decision. We're going to try to convince you of that as being the right pick when we go through this breakdown with you go over some details we understand recency bias we suffer from some of it too we kind of were looking at jasmine coming off this last fight didn't look good and this big brazilian girl fernandez who looks powerful and once you look a little bit deeper here jasmine in my opinion is the rightful pick i'm glad she's at plus money i love it hope she stays at plus money or even close to even money we're playing some bets on her as for the particulars of these two fighters Gabriela Fernandez goes by Gabby, 81 overall, 5 in her last five fights, slight favorite in the spot, out of Brazil, 29 years old, 5 for 6 in high with a 67 and a half inch reach, trained out of Kimura, Team Jirajo. As for Jasmine, 7 and 2 overall, so similar amount of fight experience, 3 in her last five fights, slight dog, out of Canada, about to be 34 years old, so about a 4 to 5 year youth advantage there for Fernandez, and uh, or 4 years, jeez. My math is a little bit off there. For Jasmine, 34 is not too old by any means, but it is now or never and has limited fight experience for only nine fights. She needs to get on a winning streak, needs to get going at her age. She's 5'7", that's Jasmine, with 68-inch reach. So height and reach-wise, they're about the same. And Jasmine's out of Niagara's top team, a very good gym. As for the votes and topology, here's a direct reflection of what we talked about, the recency bias. Fernandez is getting 76% of the votes on topology, 24% coming in for Jasso DeVicious. That's with about 1,000 votes already in. And that's because, again, recency bias. When I talk you through this, I think you're going to agree with some of our assessment. The price is right. The money line is right. I'm not arguing with that. But 76%, 76% of the votes here on tap, Aji going in favor of Fernandez, a fighter that wouldn't even be in the UFC if it wasn't for a late replacement. Not late replacement. She's a replacement. So, yeah, I have some questions to ask of you guys as we do this breakdown. Some things I want you to think about. Anyway, so Gabriel Fernandez at minus 130, Jasso Vicious at plus 110. We like Jasso Vicious to win the fight by decision. Full disclosure, at first glance, we were leaning towards the Brazilian. I'll admit it to you. She's tall, physical specimen. We too were kind of recently biased, thinking about Jasmine's last fight. She was a favorite. We bet on her. Yeah. Didn't work out. But we had a change of mind. After doing more film study, just looking at the numbers, trying not to be biased, trying to look at things, you know, black and white as much as you can, being objective, 
we found ourselves on the side of Jasmine. The strength of schedule is the biggest issue or lack thereof in the case of Gabriella. It, that's a big, it's just this gigantic void that we can't fill. We can pretend to fill it. We can try to attack it from different angles. The reality is that Fernandez just has not fought anybody. Whereas Jasmine, we can at least argue that she belongs in the UFC, maybe not a top contender, maybe never becomes a title contender. Okay. But at this moment, we could say she's she's hanging in there. She loses close fights or, you know, she lost a split decision to Elise Reed back in the day, who's down the UFC. She lost her last fight by decision against a very talented Silva who made a lot of adjustments. So I'm just saying she belongs in the UFC. We don't even know if Fernandez belongs in the UFC yet. You know, this would be her first fight. So for Jasmine, coming to this fight off of an upset loss in her last fight to Natalia Silva, Jasmine was a minus 240 favorite going into that fight. Ended up getting picked apart for three full rounds. This silver girl who had come off of a long layoff made massive improvement <laughs> and no one expected it, right? The fight was never close. Jasmine exposed one of her weaknesses in her game, which is her speed. She was slow to react. She couldn't find the timing. And so Silva just continuously just beat her to the punch, would pepper up a few leg kicks and then, you know, move out of the way. Now, part of that loss, Jasmine was 7-1 overall. And one and zero in the UFC. Things were looking good, and only loss was that split decision loss to Elise Reed. So the hype train was starting to build up. The money line starting to swell, and she goes in as a minus two forty favorite. Now, in Jasmine's defense, okay, Silva looked ten times better in this fight than we had ever seen from her on prior film. You go back and look at Silva from like three four years ago, and it was like a three year layoff too for her. She morphed into a whole different fighter, <laughs> much better striking. So I think what ends up happening there is a fight that should have been a slam dunk for Jasmine. And maybe even her managers and UFC were trying to give her a fight that was winnable. It ends up blowing up in her face because this girl comes in with a ton of improvements, caught her off guard. It was not a good matchup. The only big takeaway I go from that fight is that if Jasmine fights smaller, quicker, agile fighters like that, like a Luma Lugbume, like that kind of fighter who's like sticking and moving and kicking and peppering you with shots. Jasmine does not have the speed to match that kind of fighting. And to compound the problem, Jasmine was unable to be successful with the grappling against her. So that she attempted some huggy, you know, huggy stuff against the fence and trying to, you know, get her into that kind of a fight. But Jasmine had, had no success there, couldn't keep her there. And after a while in trying to go in was getting tagged up in the process. I will say with Fernandez, I, I believe Fernandez will be more welcoming of some huggy stuff because of the way she fights. Anyway, we like Jasmine's use, use of her length. She's not the taller fighter here, or she's taller, but it's very small. She does a good job of, you know, leading into her punches, good long length in her punches, good long length in her jab. She's got a long frame, does a good job of combinations, forward pressure. Even though she lost the last fight to Silva, she was the one coming forward. She just moving slowly was getting peppered up and not making adjustments. Maybe one of the things that's, not talked about enough with Jasmine is her grit. She is a very, very tough fighter. And I think, you know, it's her age, 33. She realized what's at stake. She's mature. She's, you know, full-blown woman. And you see that in the way she fights. She takes it serious. It matters to her. And she, she'll she fight through some pain. She'll fight through some blood on her face. We've seen her go through some adversity. We like all that. She might need to harness some of that against a Brazilian that's a bit of a wild card. And from at least on film, this Fernandez girl looks, you know, she looks jacked. Excuse me. This fight will mark the UFC debut for Gabriela Fernandez. She makes her way now onto this card because Courtney Casey backed out of this fight 
It wasn't a late replacement. I'm going to guesstimate three, four weeks, the time frame. So Fernandez had plenty of time. Assuming Fernandez was in shape, this amount of notice, there shouldn't be any kind of a problem, right? There's plenty of film on Fernandez out there on the web. So if you want to watch film on Fernandez, we have it on our Excel sheet, which is available on our Google Drive. Otherwise, just type in her name. You'll find some film on her. And the thing is, the first thing you notice is that she's fighting, I mean, amateur-level fighters. In some cases, she looks so much bigger than her opponent. I had to wonder, like, is that the same weight class? And then we're talking about regional fights, Bulgaria, Brasilia, I mean, Brazil. It's hard to authenticate the legitimacy of those fights, the weight, you know, all of it. It's just hard to put it into, you know, I guess um, an accurate perspective. What we know about the UFC, we kind of know their standards, right? LFA, Cage Warriors, and stuff. You start talking about regional promotions <laughs> overseas uh, where a fighter looks just like 20 pounds lighter than her in some of these fights. It may very well be. Yeah, so we saw some of that. How about this? Two of her last four opponents, their records are 1-2 and two and 10-11. and 11. That's two of the last four people she fought. Those are their records, 10-11 and 1-2. and, and Sub-500 level regional fighters in Bulgaria and Brazil are nowhere near the level of Jasmine. I, I could say that with a lot of confidence. Jasmine may not be a champion or champion pedigree, but she's better than some of these girls that Fernandez is fighting. No problem. No problem. I can say that with a lot of confidence. Now, based on film study, Fernandez appears to be the more powerful fighter. On film, she looks she just looks like a, a man amongst boys or a woman amongst, you know, girls. She has an impressive physique, and you see her overpowering her opponents. Like in one situation, she takes a, a Muay Thai clinch on this smaller fighter, and she's like taller, and just starts whipping this woman around, like ragdolling her and then landing some knees on her. It just makes these people look like amateurs. And she's good. Don't get me wrong. I, I think that Fernandez is good. But this kind of competition, it just leaves us with voids. We, we can't answer the question of how good is she when she's fighting opponents that look like they have little to no talent. I highly doubt she's going to put a Muay Thai clinch on Jasmine, for example, and treat Jasmine like that. I just don't see it happening that way. Now, could she tag Jasmine a few times? Could she buckle Jasmine? Could she cut Jasmine? Yes, yes, and yes to all that. But Jasmine is, again, a huge step up over whatever Fernandez has been seeing before. Now, keep in mind, Fernandez, again, would not even be in the UFC if it wasn't for Casey backing out of this fight. And I want to underline this because... How do you get to the UFC? Well, there's there late, you know, late call-ups out of nowhere. You've got contender series. You've got road to the UFC, ultimate fighter. There's a lot of paths to the UFC. There's a lot of ways to get there. But when you're becoming, when you're getting called up as a replacement on one of the weakest cards the entire year, maybe the weakest card last three or four years, and you're the one getting called up as late notice, what does it say about where the caliber you are as an athlete? And I think people are overlooking that too. So the people on Tapology who are you know, thinking she's going to win or people backing her because, oh, yeah, Jasmine didn't look good last time, think about these facts. These are not opinions here. Fact is, she wasn't a UFC fighter three, four weeks ago. Fact is, very weak card, and she's a replacement on a very weak card. <laughs> Fact number three, everyone she's fought up to now, complete, certifiable, not anywhere near UFC level. And we do know Jasmine is UFC level. So hearing that, and I know I kind of said all this already a few times, but that's our trepidation with getting behind a Brazilian who's never fought in the UFC against a fighter who has this experience. I, I think in this spot, you're going to find value on Jasmine. 
Those who bet on her last time, who have the cojones to back up her with another bet again here, I think you'll be rewarded. And the money's good. The line's good for her, right? Anyway, let me wrap this up here. So the lack of a full camp, the huge step up in competition, just some things to think about here for those that are looking to back Fernandez with their money. Now, this is not an easy fight to break down. The large gap in strength of schedule just leaves you with, you're putting in variables, you're trying to plug and play, you're assuming, well, she did that good against that girl. Will she do that against Jasmine? They're both about the same height. On the film, you see the Brazilian looks really tall and big. On some film from Jasmine, she looks tall and big. According to Tapology, they're the same height. Um, might we see something there on the scales where they go to face off and one's a lot taller than the other? I, I don't know. I think Jasmine legitimately is where she's at height-wise. Brazilian girl, where you don't know as much. You know what I mean? We're going to see a lot of betters going and taking a shot at Fernandez because of how poor Jasmine looked in her last fight. It, it's going to happen. We're going to hear Capper's doing it too. It's hard to shake off the recency bias, but you got to do it. We aren't giving up on Jasmine just yet. We're sticking with her. She's fought the much better competition. Had a full camp. We like her we like her winning the fight and probably by a close decision. Here's another fact for you. It's women's 125 pounds. There's only one division smaller than this in all of mixed martial arts. That's the 115, right? Well, the atom weights, right? But, you know, <clears throat> the point is this is going to be a fight that probably goes two and a half, three rounds, gets close, some punchy kicky, some huggy, no huggy kissy, but just huggy. And it gets, you know, it gets, it gets ugly. You get a late takedown. This girl from Brazil looks big. If she gets maybe some top control on Jasmine, Jasmine could have a hard time getting out from under. A split decision could be in the works. The big spots we like the most for this fight are the over a round and a half. The fight starts round three. Jasmine on the money line. And both fighters by decision. We'll also take a peek at the fight or split decision props, like I mentioned before. And if we play those props, they'll be on our bet tip sheet. You'll see those coming out at some point throughout the week. But it'll be small bets, like let's say a plus 1,000 split decision prop. We'll put 10 bucks on it to win 100 bucks. Why not? We can see it happening here. We can see it happening. All right, just some more details here just to go over, make sure I covered everything. So for Jasmine, kickboxing style, right-handed, average fight time in the UFC, 15 minutes, has gone a decision in all of her UFC fights so far. Has a negative striking ratio. We didn't mention that before, but I'm glad we're getting to it. She lands 3.36 per minute, but absorbs 4.56. That is a problem. Jasmine needs to employ a grappling approach to have success. That's the reason why. Averaging two takedowns per fight, 70% takedown defense with 13 total fights in her career. That's Jasmine Jasmine Divisions. Now, the pros, the things we like about her, amateur experience with 4-0. Better competition than her opponent. Even before the UFC, she was in CFFC. Like here, there's an example. CFFC is better competition than whatever um, Gabrielle has been facing even now. So Jasmine won on a contender series with a decision. That's how she got into the UFC. And then she also had the win over Julia Palastri. That was the win on contender series. If you don't know, Julia Palastri is the current LFA flyweight champion. She just won the belt like two weeks ago in Brazil. So Palastri is probably the biggest win of her career. And Palastri will get a phone call to the UFC, we'll see her either this year or early next year. There's, there's no question. She's very young, very talented. But again, that was a win for Jasmine Jasmine Vicious, and that's a fighter again. You know, I don't believe that Gabriela has fought anyone in that that scope. Now, our concerns for Jasmine, her last fight, she got busted up by Silva, was slow, split decision loss to Elise Reed. You know, I'm not a big fan of Elise Reed. Not, not personally, I, I just... 
She's limited. She's in the UFC, yeah, but split decision losses to Elise Reed are not aging well. Negative striking ratio, and I do think that Jasmine's a bit one-dimensional. She must employ some kind of grappling to reduce her exposure to speed, to slow things down, use some dirty boxing, you know, just get things slowed down a little bit. She needs that. If she can't get the grappling going, she tends to have a hard time. And last fight was it was glaring weakness, right? So for Gabriela Fernandez, out of Brazil, southpaw, that will be an adjustment for Jasmine. We think of Gabriela Fernandez as having a balanced fighting style. She could do some work on the ground. Very strong. Her guillotines, I mean, her chest muscles. I saw a video of her doing a guillotine choke on a fighter. And so as you're doing that, you can imagine you're sort of really you know, flexing, trying to pop your chest up a little bit, trying to you know crank down this, this neck of your opponent. Her chest was so defined. I mean, it was incredible. You could see all the muscles ripped. She's strong. <laughs> She's very strong. Southpaw, a lot of power, dominating her opponents, watching her on film, like fighting little kids. High finish rate, has finished half of her fights, three submissions, one TKO. That's one thing about her, even though you look at her as a, a big puncher and she's strong and broad shoulders, most of her finishes are happening via submission. The concerns we have about her, competition, we talked about it before, and speed. I did notice, like, it's an old name I'm bring up here, George Foreman. George Foreman, for those who don't remember him or know him, was a heavyweight boxer, heavyweight champion, super big guy, not the most fleet of foot, not very agile, was never quick, never fast. That was never part of his description. Powerful. Yeah, just thud power. If he hits you, it's going to hurt. He hit you with this jab that was you know slow but consistent, and if it landed enough, it was going to do some damage over time. She has a bit of that in her fighting style. And it probably sounds terrible putting it that way, but yeah, Fernandez is like kind of heavy-footed, plotting, throws her a lot of power. Over the course of two, three rounds against a fighter like Jasmine who's had more experience, who's been against better fighters, I could see the Brazilian tailing off a little bit, volume becoming an issue. And there'll be some windows there for you know Jasmine to, to close the distance and possibly even squeak out a close decision win. That's our breakdown for this fight. We took entirely way too long. I apologize. But once you start diving into these fights, the details become important. When you come here to mix martial arts, when you come here to MA Fight Club, excuse me, you're coming here for not just the content of who won or who lost, and obviously to, to, to trail our bets, and we're giving you guys good information back to back winning weeks. Hooray for Jeebus. But you're also coming here to get the details because you may not agree with our bet. That's okay. Maybe our assessment is not in agreement with your assessment. That's okay. But we talk facts and numbers. We give you as much information as we can, so that way you can make your own assessment. Because ultimately, you're in the passenger seat. You're the pilot of your ship. You're the one who's running the show. No one controls your bankroll like you do. No one controls the bets you're going to make. You never should trail anybody 100%. But when you come here, at least you're going to get a lot of information about the fights. And if you don't have the time to listen to it, and you don't like me talking too much, down below the little the little time spots there, you can fast forward, and we always give you the pick at the beginning of the video. So we're here to help you, here to service you. Tons of information, but yeah, sometimes a little long-winded, I apologize, but all in an effort to give you guys as thorough of a breakdown as possible. Capiche? All right, next video, here we go. All right, moving up the car, we've got a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between two American fighters, Eric Gonzalez, who goes by the Ghost Pepper, and Trevor Peak. Before we get into the particulars here, let me give you the pick. We like Trevor Peak to win this fight by a round two knockout. Uh, before I even go any deeper in this breakdown, there's a lot of variants here. Eric Gonzalez can full will pull this off and get a knock on himself. Peak had an interesting fight on, on Contender Series, which we'll talk about. Got the win, looks good on paper, but you know, looking back at the fight itself, 
Uh, there was some drama there. But we do like Trevor Peak to win the fight by round two. Knockout, maybe even like on the ground, a ground and pound type of a knockout. All right, so as for the particulars of these two fighters, Gonzalez is 14-7 and seven overall. Two and three in his last five fights. Hales out of Los Angeles, California. He's a slight dog here around plus 160. 31 years old, 5'11", height with a 75-inch reach. He trains out of Fight Science MMA. As for Mr. Peak, undefeated at 7-0. and Out of Alabama, 28 years old, so just three years younger. 5'9", about two inches shorter than Gonzalez, with a 70-inch reach. Now, that's a big difference. A 5-inch reach advantage there for Eric Gonzalez in the reach. We'll see how that plays out. We'll talk about it throughout this breakdown, but clearly there's a reach advantage there on the side of Gonzalez. As for Trevor Peak's training program, he's out of Powell's Martial Arts Concepts and Ago Combatives. Never heard of either gym, but uh, he's getting the job done. He's undefeated, right? As for the votes on Tapology, looks like Peak is a huge favorite, getting 94% of the votes, only 6% coming in. That's only a total of 578 votes tabulated, so not a very big sample size quite yet, but we're on Peak 2. Don't fall in love with the undefeated record. We're going to give an example of something that happened last week that kind of mirrors this same fight, trying to avoid falling into a trap, right? Okay, looking at the breakdown we have here. So Trevor Peak by round two knockout is the prediction. For Mr. Gonzalez, he enters this fight in a must-win situation. He has back-to-back -back UFC fights where he came out of the fight in a, a loss situation, also getting finished. Those are his first two UFC fights. Another bad loss, you know, it could send him packing. His best weapon is his punching power. But you got to dissect that further. We're going to talk more about his punching power. Eight of his 14 wins, for example, have been by TKO. So more than half of his win, half of his wins, excuse me, 57% to be exact, have been by him knocking someone out. I think he's got like one or two submission finishes too. But usually his hands are what's getting it done. Now, with that said, he has one finish, one finish in his last eight fights, four years. So clearly what's happened here is early on in his career, got finishes, high rate, you know, whatever. Now, uh, coming up a level, moving up a level, level, as he's doing this, his finishing rate is basically disappearing. Again, one finish in the last eight fights. Obviously, he had some losses there too, but not finishing nearly at the clip that he was before. The one thing you can't question is the guy's heart. Tons of heart. Now, he's Gonzalez, right? I'm imagining he's probably got Mexican heritage, those Mexican like warriors, those fighters who've got a big heart. He fights like that. He will stand flat-footed and trade with his opponent. It's exciting. It's box office. Dana White loved that about him. That's probably the reason why he's here. Problem is, you know, it's it's like playing Russian roulette. At some point, the bullet's going to be in the chamber, and you're going to catch that bullet. So his fighting style on the regional scene, he's a little reckless. He stands in trades. It works for him. That's okay in the regional scene. You move up to the UFC, his last two fights, he tried to employ those type of tactics, and we saw what happened. At the very least, he's an exciting fighter. You're going to get a good show. Whether he knocks the guy out or he gets knocked out himself, somebody's hitting the canvas. From that standpoint, do you want to get financially involved in backing a fighter like that? I think you know the answer. <laughs> okay, so for us, it's difficult to get involved with trying to bet on him on a serious level. We could find a prop maybe here, like a KO prop that we'll look at. But, you know, just too, too much shaky ground. Now, mind you, one more stat about him. Of his seven defeats, four of them, he got finished in those losses. It's not the end of the world, but it's showing that, again, he has a propensity. Again, he's either getting finished or he's finishing his opponent and not really going to decision too often. Now, as for Trevor Peak, he's making his UFC debut fresh off of a round two knockout win on Contender Series back in September. Full disclosure, I saw his name. I remembered him fighting. I thought, oh, yeah, this guy's pretty good. Pulled the tape back up, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot he got dropped. 
got hurt, <laughs> the fight was almost stopped. Like you could have made an argument the fight could have been stopped. He was at a point where he was taking quite a bit of damage. He was kind of barely holding on, got cut, got dropped, <laughs> the whole nine. That happened in round one, mind you. The good side of it is he ends up somehow recovering. So let's talk our way through this. So, yeah, that win was not without some drama. He had a chance to, you know, show his survival skills, come back in a fight. Obviously, Dana loved it. He was on his feet clapping, you know, giving the guys, both guys, a big round of applause. He's got a 7-0 record with a 100% finish rate, all seven wins by either a round one or round two knockout. I think specifically has five of those in round one, only two in round two. So the dude's got finishing ability, right? Now, based on Gonzalez's weaknesses, right, what is the problem with Gonzalez? What does he not do well? He doesn't play defense very well, leaves himself open. He wants to stand in trade. I feel like the UFC is literally feeding Gonzalez to peak here. This reminds me of the fight last week with Carpenter and Ronderos, where you had a guy, Ronderos, uh, Juan, Juan Camillo, I believe his first name was, hadn't fought in a while, long layoff, you know, it didn't really look like he added up as competition to Carpenter. Carpenter's coming off contender series, undefeated, they want to keep padding his record, and he just mows through Ronderos, right? I think we're going to see the same kind of thing here. I think we're going to see Trevor Peak mow through Gonzalez. There is an outside chance, you know, it's a fight, anything's possible. But that's how I see this. And if you're the UFC, let's think about it. Do you really want to see either the Trevin Peak of the world of their roster go to 7, 8, 9, and 0, that kind of direction, or have him catch an L against a guy who might be on the verge of getting removed from the roster? So it's like the perfect play here. The UFC can filter out a guy in Eric Gonzalez who with one more loss, especially by like a round one or round two knockout, it's like, hey, thank you. We'll let you go. If you, if you get your shit back together, we'll give you another shot maybe later on. Okay, fair enough. Gave him three fights, three finishes that he lost. So it works from that perspective. From the other side of it, it also works for Trevor Peak. They can get Trevor Peak another win, another finish, and build this hype up a little bit, right? Now, I'm going to give you another little devil's advocate. Remember the guy last week, Kusain Askabov? He had 22 or 23 and 0 record. We talked about it. We, we, we hit the nail on the head with this one because we were so concerned about the legitimate, legitimate legitimacy of that record and whether or not it, it could be, you know, held up against, let's say, I don't know, a 10. Was that the equivalent of like a 10-0 record in LFA or 5-0 in, in Cage Warriors? Like, what was it equivalent to? And we couldn't really draw a comparison other than to say that we're not confident in that 23-0 record that this guy Hussein Askabov had. And lo and behold, he didn't look that way and he lost the fight. And a lot of people who bet on him because they saw the record, they saw he was got the OV at the end of the last name, he's Russian, they fell into it, right? Well, same thing here for Peak. Who was he fighting? Now, in contender series, he gets the win over a guy that's like, you know, cusp of the UFC. His opponent kind of gassed out, opened the window for Peak, and Peak almost got finished in round one. Okay, another world, he gets finished there. The, the referee stands. The referee was really close to coming in and calling the fight. That's how bad it got for him. So it wasn't like he had a clean, easy victory on Contender Series and knocked the guy out and, you know, he has not shown any any you know any weaknesses in his game. No, no, no. We've seen him get cracked. We've seen him get hurt by a guy who's not even UFC material. In this case, Gonzalez, the jury's still out on that. Is he UFC material or not? But he could he can bang. He'll swing with you. He also has a bit of a chin. He's a warrior himself. So there is room here for Gonzalez to win. 
I'm just confident in my UFC brethren, the UFC brass, that they're actually putting this fight together because they do want to see Trevor get a win, and they see Gonzalez as the perfect appetite for him to possibly get another finish. The betting spots we like for this fight. The fight going under two and a half rounds. Peak on the money line. Peak wins in round one. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Peak wins in round two. And Gonzalez by knockout. Let me repeat that for you. The bets we like here are the under two and a half rounds. Peak on the money line. Peak wins in round one. Peak wins in round two. And Gonzalez by knockout. That's the breakdown, guys. I mean, we got pretty detailed there on some of the stats on both fighters. I mean, I have a few more numbers here, but honestly, I think it's pretty straightforward. Trevor Peak also is a switch dance fighter for whatever that's worth. Boxer kind of fighting style. High volume in the in little bit of time we've seen him. Also absorbs quite a bit, though, in the little bit of time we've seen him. We'll see what happens here. We got two fighters that quite possibly are going in different directions. For Gonzalez, another loss. Could be the odd man out looking in. Um, and for Trevor Peak, another good opportunity here to sort of, you know, pave his way, show he belongs. But uh, he needs to tighten up a few things, can't be getting his hit, and clearly can't be getting hurt like he did on the Contender Series fight because you know, you're not going to have a long career surviving that, that, that kind of up-and-down drama. So Peak's the pick. Peak is the pick. By a round two TKO, we'll be spreading this out with a handful of different plays. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter. You get a free breakdown every week written up. Sent to you via email, along with our full bet tip sheet. The information for that Substack newsletter is right down below. Just go down below here in the description on, on YouTube. Look for the link for the Substack newsletter. Click on that link. Subscribe. Just takes an email. There's no spamming, no credit card, no subscribing, no paywall, none of that stuff. A really nice, in-depth, detailed newsletter for all UFC events, Bellator, PFL Invicta, we do the best we can to cover as many events as possible. You get a full breakdown in a written format, nice and neat, stats, the whole nine. Usually we have some links in there for our Google Drive to check our raw notes and also see our Excel sheets. But on top of that, you get the full tip sheet as well, which has all of our bets replacing parlay bets, individual bets, our specials, prop bets, the whole nine. So that's the breakdown for this fight, guys. Let's move on. Alrighty, next fight in the main card is going to be a welterweight bout between two Canadian fighters. Also, also, both fighters have come out of the Dana White Contender Series, so a lot in common with these two guys. Again, welterweight bout, 170 pounds. you got Mike Mallett, who goes by proper, 8-1-1 overall, against Johan Leonice, the white line, who's 9-1-0 overall. I'll give you the pick right away to get out of the way for those who have to move forward in the video. We'd like Mike Mallett to win the fight into the distance. That's our prediction. Mike Mallett into the distance. Currently, Mallet's sitting at minus 225 on the money line. You can get Johan on the other side at plus 190. All right, as for the particulars of these two fighters, Mike Proper Mallet, 8-1-1 overall, 4-0-1 in his last five fights from Sacramento, California currently, but of Canadian nationality, 31 years old, 6'1 in height with a 73-inch reach, trains out of House of Champions MMA and also Team Alpha Male. As for Johan Lyonis, 9-1 overall, also from Canada, from Quebec specifically. He's the underdog in this matchup, 30 years old. So both guys are 30-31, similar in age. Both 6'1", 76-inch reach for Johan. So roughly about, what, 3 inches in reach advantage for Johan over Mike Mallet. And for Johan, he trains out of Brazilian top team Canada and also Techno Boxe. 
those are the basics of the two fighters. What about the numbers coming in on topology? What is the public saying? Mallet by 90% of the votes. Yeah, we like Mallet too, but we feel like he's just a more well-rounded overall fighter. But we'll break this down with you, go through some details, and if there's a shot for a guy like Johan Leonis to win the fight, we're going to try to cover that and cover that angle and talk you through it. But yeah, Mallet's a big favorite for us. We're going to be parlaying him, playing him on the money line, and then we have a few props we'll also talk about. Okay, let's get to the breakdown here. So Mike Mallet, it's at the distance. He fought in Bellator and CFFC prior to his UFC contract that he got through a dominant performance on Contender Series in 2021. So Malik came into the UFC with a little more experience than some of those typical Contender Series guys, right? Bellator, CFFC. Malik won his UFC debut with a round one knockout over Mickey Gall. Very impressive. He averages 5.02 strikes per minute. Nice high volume. Absorbs 4.19. You'd like to see that number come down a bit, improve his, his, his stand-up defense. As for Mallet's finishing ability, very good. He's finished seven of his eight fights, which comes out to 88% finish rate. He's a well-rounded BJJ practitioner, has a purple belt in BJJ, and a very high fighter IQ. If you don't know, he has served as like a head coach in multiple gyms for like Muay Thai and BJJ. Currently, not sure where he's coaching, but he's coaching somewhere probably, and he's coaching high-level guys. So the guy's got high fighter IQ, very smart fighter. There's a lot to like about him. There's a lot to get pumped up. He's young. Well, youngish, 30 years old, good looking. He's handsome. Kind of reminds me of Clark Kent with just the way his, I don't know, his facial features. But we have to pump the brakes because he hasn't really fought anyone just yet. I mean, maybe his biggest win was his last fight against Mallet. I mean, Mallet <laughs> against uh, Mickey Gall. So he just hasn't had uh, a signature win just yet, right? Now, as for Johan Leonis, the other Canadian fighter, he's Canadian kickboxer. That's what he reminds me of. Kickboxing, knees, uh, long legs, heavy puncher, not much of a ground game. He also has an impressive finish rate, 67% to be exact. He comes into this fight off of a split decision win over Darian Weeks in his that was his second UFC fight, right? He had lost his debut. So he bounces back from the first fight where he lost to then win his last fight, which is good. It was quite interesting, though, because he fought a completely different way his second fight. He was very patient, working from distance, managing his cardio. If you don't remember his first fight, he ends up gassing out terribly <laughs> and losing the fight. Maybe got too excited, uh, UFC debut, yeah, whatever, so on and so on. But with his background, high finish rate, first round, second round knockouts, he came into the UFC thinking he could do the same thing. Didn't work out. So now he comes second fight against Weeks. Totally different approach. Gets a decision win. Slows things down. Manages cardio. You do like that. His approach worked. Split decision, mind, mind you, but still it worked. It came away. Now a decision win. Possibly at least gives him maybe a, an experience, right? He gets a little more well-rounded from it. So it's not like a whole bad experience altogether. All it's also not very positive because his knockout ability is what got him into the UFC. You know, he had tons of knockout on the regional scene. Six knockouts in like seven or eight fights. Comes to the UFC now, two fights in a row, no knockouts. Does his weapon of finishing ability, will that transfer over to the UFC? This happens all the time. Guys will go out there and knock out people in the regional scene. They come to the UFC, not knocking anybody out. And if he doesn't have that ability, we're taking away a gigantic part of what makes him an attractive prospect in the UFC. So I think we have to recalibrate our expectations on him as a high finisher. The rate of 67% is what we know of as of now. But if you're going the last two fights, the smaller sample size, he hasn't finished anybody. Hasn't finished anyone in the UFC yet. Mike Mallett, being as smart as he is and very durable, Mallett's been finished what, one time in his career, and that was 2014, almost nine, 10 years ago. So I don't find this a good spot for Johan to find a finish, especially if he employs a similar fighting strategy to what he did last fight. And he probably will because he saw that as a winning strategy. Mind you, by split, but it was a winning strategy. 
Though we respect Johan's power and his adjustment between his last two fights that shows good fighter IQ, good coaching, you know, we think Malik's the more well-rounded fighter from top to bottom. We've had a chance to see more from Malik the last few years. We've seen him fighting more organizations. We've seen him fighting more UFC fights, right? Johan is dependent upon his punching power to win most of his fights. We just talked about how that may not be there anymore, at least not in the UFC. It's been almost a decade since the last time that Malik was knocked out. I just don't see it happening again right here in this matchup where he's the wittier fighter, more of a veteran. So I think if Malik can show what he's shown in past fights, he has the durability, he has the, the wherewithal to survive the KO and go all three rounds. If that ends up being the case, then the fight is going to favor uh, Mallet heavily because he's got higher volume, better striking ratio. He's more well-rounded, right? If you like Johan, you're looking at the Johan by KO prop. That's really where it would come down to. If Johan is just barely beating a guy like his last fight by split decision, that fighter's not as good, for example, as, as Mallet. Mallet's a step up. If he employs that same fighting style, not going to work. Mallet's a higher pace fighter, incorporates a balanced attack, tremendous cardio, better cardio that we know of, we've seen it documented, than in the case of Johan. So I, I see it like this. Unless Mallet drops the ball here, makes a major mistake, suffers an injury, a bad cut, something could happen like that, we should see him put on a clinic and win this fight with ease. That's our expectation. Now, the betting spots we like here the most are the fight not going the distance. I like that spot because it covers us in the case Johan does get a knockout. And it covers us in the case that Mallet extends Johan, Johan gets tired, or in the case of Mallet getting a submission, very good submission ability. We also like Mallet on the money line. At this price tag, minus 225, love it. Hope it doesn't move too much. We'll be parlaying it. A few more details here before I wrap this up. So Mallet, out of Team Alpha Male, orthodox stance, average fight time, 6 minutes, 27 seconds, averaging 5.02 strikes per minute, per minute. He's a balanced fighter, absorbing 4.19 per minute, needs to bring that number down. 0% takedown defense. I didn't look at enough film to tell you if that's a number because he's never been attempted to take that against or because he had like one or two takedowns attempted against him and he let them both up. He's not having to worry about that in this fight, okay? Uh, Johan is, is not much of a grappler. He's got a few takedowns, but he's not much of a grappler. He'll be looking to keep the fight at distance and work on the feet. For takedown offense for Mike Mallett, landing 1.55 takedowns per fight and has 12 total fights between his pro and amateur career. A balanced attack, contender series product, high finish rate, high fighter IQ, and a man of character. If you don't know, he had a colleague, I think a teammate or a coach or someone in his gym whose daughter was going through a bout of cancer. He made an announcement after one of his fights that he was donating his purse to, uh, to the proceeds of, of helping that family. And he ends up getting a ton of attention by doing that, positive attention. And uh, some high rollers ended up donating money as well to that family. And I think it included, um, I can't remember offhand, but just, I think Jake Paul, for example. I think Jake Paul was one of the people who donated. So he's a man of character. Uh, he, he believes in helping people around him. And, and that, it was a high character moment for him. Our concerns for him, his chin. I bring this up and I'm, I'm being picky, I know. He got knocked out in 2014 whatever, a long time ago. That's the only one of the only blemishes on his resume, which is why I have to point to it and look at it. All right, picking that apart. Ton of time has gone since then, has taken some good punches in recent fights where he didn't look chinny at all. But we just aren't sure there. I'm not sure Johan's the guy who's going to bust his chin open, but as he moves up the ladder, okay, as he fights better competition, I'll be keeping my eye, my eye on that chin for Mallet. I want to know if for sure he could take some shots. Can he take shots from harder strikers? 
I'm not sure of that. I'm just mentioning it as an area of, of uh, an unknown area. You know, the, the, as, the, as the phrase goes, the jury's still out on that one, okay? Um, second thing is competition. Though I like Mallet again, and I like him in this fight, who has he really fought? And you know what? Maybe his toughest opponent, I said earlier, was Mickey Gall. Actually, let's go back further. He got knocked out by Hakeem uh, Duwadu. That's probably his toughest opponent that he ever fought. At that time, especially, Hakeem had a run in the UFC. Hakeem knocked him out. And so when he has faced somebody that was good, Mallet, that is, got knocked out. When he faced somebody that was, eh, okay, good, Mickey Gall, he gets the win there and gets to finish. You know, so it's, it's still tough for us to kind of gauge. Competition-wise, it's been average fighters. And clearly, Mallet is still in search of his first signature win in the UFC. This wouldn't be it. But he's still in search of that first win. And then time. Father time, that is. At 31 years old, or 30 years old, which one, which one is Mallet here? Mallet is 31 years old. He's a coach. I believe he's engaged or maybe married already. Time's ticking, dude. Time is ticking. He needs wins. He needs them on top of each other. He needs two, three fights a year. He needs to make a move if he ever expects to break into that top five, top six, and actually have a chance at ever competing for a title. So a loss for him would be devastating. As it would be for Johan, and they're in a similar boat. So, you know, this is an important fight for both fighters. It'll determine sort of the the next few fights for them after this. Like, are they going to go moving up the ladder, or do they kind of get a step back? We like Mallet here. He's just a more veteran, savvy fighter, more experienced, and uh, we think he's got the high fighter IQ in this matchup. All that said, you do want to sprinkle that KO prop for Johan. If you're, if you're betting, let's say, aggressively with uh, the side of Mallet, which we will be pretty aggressive in parlays and whatever else. We'll sprinkle that KO prop for Johan uh, just enough to kind of cover at least some of our losses, if not even come back even. And the, the pro- money should be good there. It should be pretty plus money, especially with right now Mallet at minus 225. So that's our breakdown, guys. Like Mike Mallet, good luck with this fight. Up next, we get a flyweight bout, 125 pounds between two female fighters, Montana De La Rosa, the American fighter, versus Tatiana Suarez, another American fighter. Both of them have Spanish last names, but they're both American fighters. We'll give you the pick to win to get out of the way real quick for those who have to move forward in the video. I'd like Suarez to win the fight. Round one, ground and pound, TKO. That's how we see it happening. If it doesn't happen in round one, probably rolls over into round number two, see Montana dealing with some cut on her face of some kind, most likely on her forehead area. She tends to cut pretty badly and then bleeds like a stuffed pig. So uh, we do see Suarez get the TKO at some point. Now at minus 750, she's priced accordingly, if that's what you're expecting. Uh, The line suggests she's probably going to finish here because minus 750 is the finishing range of a price point for money line uh, favorites. Rosa's plus 550. If you like Rosa, now's the time to pull the plug. Uh, Pull the plug, pull the trigger, uh, because clearly she's... uh, Big plus money, right? <laughs> anyway, we like Suarez again to win the fight by round one TKO. That is our prediction. As for the particulars, Mr. Suarez, Mr. Suarez, Miss Suarez is eight and zero undefeated prospect. Let me say this first of all: if you are a new mixed martial arts fan, let's say you started watching MMA two years ago, even three years ago, right, two thousand twenty, you don't know who this person is. You, you haven't heard this name, uh, and I will admit here, full disclosure. I became an active fan, started covering mixed martial arts around 2021-ish, 2020, late 2020. So this name for me was also a blind spot. I had to look her up, look up her background. 
And you're going to be surprised to find out who she is and what's been going on with her because uh, she's like one of those little hidden gems that you never heard of. And when you watch her on film, the film study, it pops out to you like, holy shit, this girl can be like champion in this division like this year. Like she's that good. So we'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, Suarez is interesting. So she's 8-0 undefeated, huge favorite out of California, 32 years old. Only five foot five in height. Again, these are smaller ladies. She's five foot five compared to the five foot seven for Rosa. Rosa tends to be taller in her matchups, about two inches taller in this matchup. And for Suarez, sixty six inch reach compared to sixty eight inches for Rosa. So about a two inch reach advantage there as well for Rosa. Don't think it's going to be a factor, but putting it out there, Rosa is the taller, longer fighter. Suarez is out of Millennium MMA, and Rosa trains out of Elevation Fight Team in Colorado. As for Rosa, twelve seven and one overall, interesting record. She's two two and one in her last five fights. Big underdog here, uh, from originally from Texas, 28 years old, five foot seven as we mentioned before, 68 inch reach, 68 inch reach, and again of elevation fight team. All right, let's get to the details in our write up here on these two fighters. For Della Rosa, very strong grappler, good submission ability. She wrestled in high school, like state champion type of thing. Got a scholarship to college, got pregnant as a teenager, very young, and obviously decided to go ahead, go ahead and have her daughter, who's also now a very good wrestler and, and competing. And, um, and, um, nonetheless, it, it derailed her immediate future in college. So she went back home, uh, got a job, you know, managed all of that. I think went to community college for a little bit. So she had to grow up pretty quickly and she's still young at only 20, what, 27, 28 years old. She's still young, making big improvements. She averages 2.08 takedowns per fight. Again, back to her wrestling ability. She wasn't the ultimate fighter years ago. Um, if you count the ultimate fighter submission win that she had, she has six total submission wins in the UFC. On the feet, she lands 2.60 strikes per minute. Not high volume, but it's also an indication of the way she fights. A little bit more of a concern is that she's absorbing approximately 3.19 per minute, so she's got a negative striking ratio. We'll get back around to talking about that as well. But again, Montana, most of her work is done on the ground. Against average grapplers, she's had some success. Against average opponents in general, she's had success. Without question, though, you know, I don't think Suarez is an average grappler. We'll talk about her in a second, but this is not an average grappler. And for Rosa, she got dragged by Barber, dragged by Arrajo, and Lee. Rosa is the classic case for me as an example of that middle-of-the-road fighter. She belongs in the UFC. She could hold her own. Very tough. Doesn't give up. Doesn't pull the um, William Knight move. Not fighting. She usually bleeds out at some point. She's tough, you know, but she's very middle-of-the-pack. She isn't the worst fighter by any means, but she's nowhere near the top of the division. She's durable. She could take an ass kicking for two, three rounds, yet she lacks the power to change the course of the fight. She can't overpower someone who's a better wrestler. She can't knock somebody out with one punch. If she can't beat you on points and get ahead on the scorecards and outlast you have the better cardio, it's hard for her to find a win. Now, she'll put up a good fight this fight. I expect her early on to try to grapple, try to do some things. Early on, she's going to do whatever she can. Against Suarez, I just wonder over the course of three rounds, you know, will that be enough? Will that game plan of just trying to grapple and wrestle with someone who's also a very good wrestler who might be stronger, is that going to be enough? Okay. So as for Suarez, she too was a former high school wrestler, very accomplished, and twice was, I don't know how it works, was either earned or nominated for National Wrestler of the Year. Again, not sure if it was a competition, but that's part of her accolades twice, National Wrestler of the Year. Obviously, female wrestling, right? Not men's wrestling. She also flirted with a potential Olympic team berth. She was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and that derailed her 
chances of competing for an Olympic team. But that's how good she was in wrestling. Obviously has recovered from the thyroid cancer. She busted onto the scene in 2016, winning the Ultimate Fighter. That was season 23. Feels like forever ago. Then she went on to win her first four UFC fights against Vivian Pereira, Alexa Grasso. You might recognize that name. She's fighting for the belt upcoming soon against Shevchenko. She fought and beat Carla Esparza, current UFC champion. And then she went ahead and defeated Dina Nunes. Notably, she finished Grasso and she finished Esparza. Yeah, I mean, just saying that back in your head, she finished both of those fighters. Now, it was a few years ago, but still gives you an idea of the potential we're talking about here with Tatiana Suarez, a fighter who you may have never heard of before, right? To say the least, Suarez got off to an amazing start in her career, right? She's multiple wins, ultimate fighter, got paid, all is good. Then she gets bitten by the injury bug. And it sidelines her for the better part of the last four years. It's like, that's a long time. We're talking about, you get to that five-year point, it's like half a decade. <laughs> you know, career start and end. People go into the UFC and they're out of the UFC within a year or two. It's been almost four years, so it's a long time. Now, during that time, based upon her feedback in interviews, I'm basing it on that. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I, I can't tell you for sure if this is truth or not, but it's based upon her, her responses. She had neck injuries, back injuries, and then a knee injury that was already documented. So this was going on the last few years. I do want to note, she had a fight in 2021 that was scheduled with Roxanne Montefiore that was canceled due to the knee injury. But that fight was almost two years after the Ultimate Fighter win. So it, there's, there's gaps here, okay? There was like a two-year gap there, another long gap here. Supposedly, the injuries were so bad that she also was unable to train. So it, it, it compounded, you know, a back injury, obviously, a back and neck injuries, not that you could train a lot on an ankle injury. I'm just saying there's probably more limitations when you've hurt your back or your neck. But this is a question mark. We'll come back around to it. It's not uh, It's not good news, right? It's also created a very long layoff for her, right? So back to my notes here. Suarez uses a very heavily grappling approach. 4.82 takedowns per fight. Yeah, almost five takedowns per fight. And quite frankly, with her top control, and she's improving with her top control, she probably gets less than that in this fight because she spends so much time in a top position and doesn't have to bring Montana back down. I think she gets down. Mon she, I think she gets Montana down once and never lets her up, type of thing. You know what I mean? On the ground, she loves to just grind up her opponents. That's where she does, you know, the bulk of her damage. On the feet, though, Suarez does average 4.82 strikes per minute. That's almost double the output of Rosa. So if it was to like play on the feet at some point, that's definitely not going to benefit Rosa. That would benefit Suarez. Suarez only absorbs 1.45 strikes per minute. So now striking-wise, Montana's got a negative striking ratio. You have Suarez with the reverse. Very high positive striking ratio. Good output. Limited strikes that she's getting absorbed per minute. This fight is not a good matchup for Rosa. When you look at the numbers, the talent, the potential, the 12-7-1 you know, record hovering somewhere in that I'm above 500 range, but... A few more losses here. We're going to be at 500. This is a good matchup for Suarez to get her feet back wet in the UFC. And, you know, if they want to get her rolling, get her to 9-0, 10-0, make a run here. I mean, she's got the tools. They're feeding her Montana. <laughs> and they're going to feed her someone that is going to give a good effort. You know, we like Montana De La Rosa here. But, you know, I, I'm having a hard time envisioning how does she, how does she overcome all these things. What we see here happening is Suarez takes Montana to the ground, starts to grind her up, lands an elbow on that forehead or above the eyebrow, cuts up Rosa. Rosa's fighting through this. 
spilling blood everywhere. And ultimately, the ref comes in and stops it because Suarez is just laying down too many hits and Montana cannot respond. That's how we see it breaking down. If it's not in round one, we get into round two. She's absorbing too much on the ground as well. And I see Suarez getting the win that way. Now, is there the outside chance, like alternative universe, where Suarez is just so rusty, comes out very patient? Round one is close. Could go either way. Then we get into round two. Um, she's still tentative, but then maybe on top of that, not fully healed from an injury. Um, just ring rust is all abound. We get a close second round. We get into round three, and now you're like, "What's going on with Suarez? She was this dominant fighter, you know. She the ult, and you remind yourself it's been four years. She hasn't fought in a long time. Tons of injuries, and now she fatigues in round three because she got all anxious for the fight. She lost sight of her game plan. She now might be be behind in the scorecards. She's also fatiguing, and you got my. Montana, who's been, she's been doing this now for a minute, very active, and now Montana like somehow slips in as a veteran and gives you a greasy fight. Well, we got you covered though on the betting perspective on all these different parameters because though we like Suarez, we're not parlaying her. Don't do that to yourself. Not at minus seven hundred. Absolutely not recommended. Nobody, you know, friends don't let friends type of thing. We're not going to let you do that either. The betting spots we do like for this fight. Suarez into the distance, Suarez in round one and in round two. We'll look at both those props when they come out. They should be pretty juicy. We'll play them both. We can't win them both. We'll play them both. Under two and a half rounds. And the long shots now are going to be Rosa by submission and Rosa by decision. Now, I mean, shit, if Della Rosa were to win by TKO, that would be extremely surprising. If she were to win by decision, not as equally surprising or even submission. We're covering our assets just in case of a gigantic upset. It's women's mixed martial arts. In the event there's an upset here, you want to have some kind of investment on the Rosa side. Just trust us here. You don't want to put all of your investment here on Suarez. You're getting little return on the money line, and possibly these props will not be paying out very well either. There's a good chance the bulk of our actual attention will be on the dog in some way, shape, or form, but let's focus on how we win with the dog. It's probably going to be by submission for a fatigue Suarez or a, by a decision. It's not going to be by TKO. So we're going to go ahead and focus our attention on the submission decision props there for Montana De La Rosa while acknowledging Suarez should run through her. No ifs, ands, or buts. At minus 700 again, you're not parlaying that. If you're doing that, you're playing with fire. You're really playing with fire. I don't want to jinx you, but uh, it's absolutely not highly recommended. All right, some more details on these two fighters before I wrap this up here. Tatiana is a southpaw. She's a wrestler in terms of her fighting style. She'll push you up against the fence, rip you down, averaging 4.82 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.45, 100% takedown defense, averaging a ton of takedowns per fight. Hold on a second. Did I say earlier the wrong number? Because now I have a different number here, and I just want to make sure that I got the right number. So give me one second here. Because her takedown offense, didn't I quote earlier that she had something like four point something? And I'm looking at this number here, and I'm getting a different number. So just give me one second. For Tatiana Suarez, she's averaging 6.47 takedowns per 15 minutes. I believe I said earlier 4.82. That was incorrect, so I'm correcting myself there. 6.47 takedowns. Wow, she's active wrestler. She's going to go after it. She's going to test that part of uh, De La Rosa's game. De La Rosa has, you know, what, 
40, 63% takedown defense. That number will be adjusted after this fight. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. For Suarez, uh, landing, again, landing 4.82 per minute, absorbing 1.45, went over that, and then has 10 total fights under her belt because she has eight pro fights and two amateur fights. Suarez, season 23 winner, good opponents, nice wins, Carlos Barza, Alexa Grasso, decorated wrestler. The concerns we have for Suarez, the obvious ones, the injuries and the long layoff. As for Montana De La Rosa, out of elevation fight team, good gym, only 28 years old, a grappler, negative striking ratio, which we talked about, average fight time, about 12 minutes, takedowns, averaging about two takedowns per fight with 63% takedown defense and 22 total fights under her belt. For De La Rosa, a good wrestler, decent submission ability, six total submissions in her pro career, Pretty durable. Only been finished twice. Once by submission and once by TKO, but they were both pretty good fighters, and they were also a while ago. She could take a beating with the best of them. <laughs> She's pretty durable. She's got a lot of heart. Only 28 years old. We forget that because she got onto the scene pretty young. She has still room to grow. She could be still making improvements. I'm not sure how much stronger she can get, but still has room to grow. Grow, excuse me. Our concerns, though, for Montana De La Rosa. Number one, she's a bleeder. She tends to cut, and when she cuts, it's... You know, perpetual bleeding. It's it's going on. It's all over the place. And so we're concerned in this fight, if she's on the ground, taking some elbows, gets cut, that's not going to help her, right? Her strength. She's not a weak fighter, but she's a long fighter. She's a leaner fighter. Tatiana's a little bit more on the husky side. She's a little bit thicker. And I think when it comes down to the grappling exchanges against the fence, neutral situations, I think Rosa, even though her technique is on point, and she, she depends on good technical grappling to get the advantage, the power advantage will be so far on the on the side of Tatiana that I think Tatiana is just able to overpower her and basically just throw technique out the window. There's levels to this, right? There's levels to this game of mixed martial arts. I believe Rosa is, you know, an echelon below the top level of fighters and not even a step below, an echelon below, you know, quite a bit. Whereas Suarez, based upon her past and her resume, she is going to be like that one step below the top fighters in the division, now proving her way, working her way up. With Rosa, she's been in the UFC for four years or so, handful of fights. We kind of know where she stands, and I don't believe that she's anything more than just the middle-of-the-road average fighter that belongs in the UFC, yes, but doesn't have the tools to win against a fighter like this who has so much potential and you know so much talent. The negative striking ratio, we talked about that for Rosa. Yeah, it doesn't help her on the feet. She's going to be at a disadvantage on the ground. I think we see a lot of ground strikes from um, Suarez, so it ends up looking like on paper that she landed a bunch of punches or strikes, but it's going to be mostly ground strikes. And then defense. Uh, when it comes to defense, obviously, Rose is getting hit more than she's delivering, has to shore up her defense. She's a bleeder. That's not, um, not a good recipe, right? So in summary, we do like Suarez to win at minus 750. We're not telling you something you don't know. The big question is, how does she do it? Is it round one? Is it round two? Uh, is it a submission? Is it TKO? We feel like it's going to be a bloody mess. End of round one. She gets the finish, and the referee steps in and just kind of puts Montana De La Rosa out of her misery. For Rosa, I hope she doesn't get cut from something like this. She shouldn't. She's a good fighter. This is an unwinnable matchup in some ways. Much more curious, though, about where Tatiana Suarez goes from here. Does she take a long layoff? Does she re-aggravate an injury? I mean, has she fully healed? Four years is a long time, but some of the injuries that she suffered were pretty pretty big ones. So how does this work out for her? Because if she just barely gets out of here with a win, maybe sustains some damage, her stock takes a big hit, and you're like, oh, we have to readjust. If she comes in here and road grades Montana De La Rosa and runs through her quickly, gets a nice, easy win, 
Hype Train's gonna start building like this undefeated fighter. She's back in the scene, so on and so on. So I know it's a long breakdown. My apologies, but I'm trying to give you the details, the nuggets to help make sure that if you're betting on this fight, you're on the right side of where you should be betting on and you have the information you need to make an informed decision. If you don't know already, please subscribe to our Substack newsletter to get access to our full tip sheet for all UFC, all of our MMA events we cover, okay? So we'll give you an idea of where we're betting at on the fights as we talk you through the breakdowns, of course, and tell you who we like. But if you want the actual detailed bet tip sheet, if you want to trail us on some of our bets, which is totally free to do, that tip sheet is available through our Substack newsletter. The link for that is down below. That newsletter is published once, twice a week with a full card breakdown, written format, kind of like what we're doing here on video just in a written format. And then also the tip sheet comes out attached to it with all of our prop bets, our parlays, a few specials, our individual bets, all nice and tabulated for you, calculated down to the 0.01 digit and uh, informative, also free. All right, guys, let's move on with the video, but we are on Suarez to win the fight, round one TKO. Next up, we have a heavyweight clash between Augusto Sakai from Brazil and Dante Mays, the American heavyweight. Before we get into the gist of this breakdown, I'll give you the pick to start us off. We'd like Dante Mays to win the fight by decision. Yes, by decision as a heavyweight fight. We've seen some heavyweight fights go to decision recently. Just last weekend with uh, Parisian's fight. Um, we see some similarities with this fight. Neither guy has the best KO power. Um, but their stats are interesting because I think 12 of the last 14 fights have been a finish. Uh, so we'll go through it. We'll sift through the details. We'll talk numbers on both sides. But for those who have to move forward in the video, again, we'd like Mays to win by decision. Let's talk details. For Sakai, he's 15-5-1 overall. 1-4 in his last five fights. A bit of a rough stretch. He carries a Japanese last name, Sakai, obviously. But he's from Piranha, Brazil. 31 years old. 6-3 in height with a 77-inch reach. So let's talk height and reach for a second. Mays is very tall, six foot six in height, so we'll have a three inch height advantage. And then he has 81 inch reach, have about a four inch reach advantage. For Sakai, he trains out of Gal Ribeiro team, which is a very good gym down in Brazil. Mr. Mays goes by Lord of Kong. Nine and four overall, two, two and one in his last five fights. Hails out of Louisville, Kentucky, 31 years old. As we mentioned before, six foot six in height with 81 inch reach, and he trains out of Bronx Hill MMA. As for the numbers on tapology, looks like Sakai is the favorite. He's also the slight favorite on the money line. That's not a surprise. The the line, the uh, votes on Tapology, that's more of a surprise. 65% for Sakai, only 35% for Mays. I would have seen it to be even. And again, we're edging Mays to win this fight by decision. Okay, looking at our breakdown, these two fighters. Sakai, he's actually a Dana White Contender Series product. I forgot about that. He was on the first season of the show, 2018. He had a win by, I think, round one or round two knockout. That's how he got his, that's how he got his way into the UFC. Now, prior to that, he went 4-1-1 in Bellator, so had a good run in Bellator, good experience. The biggest win of his career was a round one knockout over Marcin Tybura. Now, that was back like 2018, 2019, but it's aged very well. We've seen Tybura recently, and he looks pretty good. So, guy has excellent output for a heavyweight, maybe one of the highest outputs of all the heavyweights currently active. He lands 4.73 strikes per minute. When he's at his best, he's peppering his opponent. Nothing too hard. He reminds me like the heavyweight version of Sean Strickland. It's not that Sean Strickland doesn't have any power behind his punches, but he sort of times things and he'll pepper you, pepper you, and then hit you hard. That's a little bit of what Sakai does. Now, unfortunately for Sakai, he is in the midst of his worst streak of his career. He has been knocked out in his last four fights. So four losses in a row and all been by knockout and some ugly ones at that. He has a split decision win over Ivanov and Arlovsky. I hate to say it, they are wins, but you know not all wins are created equal. And split decision wins over those guys 
indication of where Sakai is at from a skill level standpoint. It's no wonder that when he fought against Spivak, Rosenstrike, and um, and uh, I forgot the other guy, but he, his last few fights, no wonder he got knocked out because, again, he fought better competition and he was up against it. So for me, clearly Sakai, his last four, five, six fights has shown us that he can't really hang the top 10 heavyweights. He belongs out to the top 10, but once he has to fight those guys like in that you know second tier right from the top, he has a hard time. Sakai is exclusively a stand-up fighter. He only averages 0.13 takedowns per fight, so pretty much no takedowns. And on the ground, he's a bit, he's a bit vulnerable. Uh, if you look at the fight versus Spivak, he got taken down. That was his last fight. got grounded and pounded. So on the ground, Sakai has some weaknesses. Now, as for, as for Mr. Mays, the grass is not necessarily greener for him. Uh, he's going through some, some struggles himself. He's 2-3 in his last five fights. Now, 2-3 and three if you count the last loss as a real loss. You go to Tapology, it shows no contest. He lost the fight. <laughs> if you were betting on him that night, you lost, and they didn't refund your money. Hamdi is not a very good fighter, not a very good skill set, barely should even be in the UFC, was making his debut. He goes in and wins a split decision over Mays. Now, later on after the fight, this guy Hamdi tests positive for the juice. Look, if I took steroids and I went and fought <laughs> against Mays, I still am not going to beat Mays, okay? So... I don't care what this guy was on. It still is a terrible loss for Mays. Embarrassing, and he really should have won the fight. Meaning that he should have won the fight. I'm not saying he, he should have won on the scorecards. He should have done better than that. We do have concerns also about his negative striking ratio. Mays lands 3.65 strikes per minute, absorbs 3.84. Again, almost four strikes per minute. That's a high amount of you know absorption rate for, again, the heavyweight division where you know one strike can make a big difference. Against a high-volume striker like Sakai, Mays could find himself behind in the scorecards. If we're into round two, we're into round three, that could be a problem for Mays, who tends to slow down. He, he's got to be careful. doesn't get so low volume and get behind the scorecards where he ends up in a situation where he's you know just behind in general. Now, Mays lands... Excuse me, Mays should find some success on the ground. That's an area where I feel like he can separate himself. He lands 1.11 takedowns per fight. That's obviously a lot more than Sakai. You've seen him take down opponents in the past. He's heavy on top. And then again, with Sakai, Sakai can be taken down. The blueprint's there. Last fight against Spivak, he had a hard time. Will Mays follow the blueprint? Will he use high fighter IQ and just not reinvent the wheel? Now, he, he needs what? Let's say maybe one or two takedowns the entire fight. Not constantly shooting, not wearing himself out, but like maybe wait till round two, go for a takedown, then go for another one in round three. You know, kind of keep it even, put it that way. We're going with Mays by default, emphasizing default. I don't have a lot of confidence in either fighter, and we simply cannot get behind Sakai right now with this four fight losing streak, getting knocked out, durability issues, you know, so on and so on. Mays has the more, Mays is the more athletic of the two, superior wrestling, and he's a better, and he has a better chin in my opinion. We do not have high confidence, though, in Mays. We're not confident in him, and no one should be confident in him. <laughs> Matter of fact, I have a joke for you in a second here. I'll, I'll get to it, but we strongly advise limiting your financial exposure in this fight. Just don't bet too much. If you, if you feel like you have to bet because you got the itch, just keep it small. Don't heavily invest. We don't have a good leaning the way. Now, here's the thing. Wagering on Dontail Mays should be accompanied with a warning label, and it would be read like this. Quote, symptoms of betting on Dontail Mays could lead to shortness of breath, chest pain, frequent vomiting, lower bank rolls, and depression. And so I'm warning you, if you bet on Maze and you're watching this fight, it's not going to be clean. Now, some people say, oh, he'll just knock out Sakai. Yeah, you're hoping for that. 
But don't overreact to his last four fights that Sakai dropped because he was facing much better competition than what Mays has to offer. And Mays, who's not very active, you know, he has some holes in his game. Fighter IQ is one of the issues I have with him. Uh, so yeah, betting on Mays should come with a morning label. <laughs> All right, so for the bets we like in this spot, the betting spots we like the most are the fight going over a round and a half, Oxman in a second, Mays on the money line, and Sakai by decision. Of their last 14 combined fights, only two of them have not gone, uh, only two of them have gone to decision. So pretty high finish rate between the two of them. I find them to be pretty closely matched though. And that's why we're thinking the fight could go to decision. We're thinking most fans, most pundits, most cappers are going to be seeing this fight going under and seeing it finish somewhere. But you know, consider this, Sakai hasn't won a fight in three years. Maybe Sakai comes out and employs a conservative approach, looks to get to round two, defend himself from an early knockdown or knockout, which is he's lost four fights in a row via knockout. I'm thinking a tentative Sakai is all we need to get to that over round and a half. So that round and a half over round and a half prop is the one I like the most here. In a matchup with really high variance, a lot of question marks where you don't want to bet either side because you're just not sure that over round and a half spot is where we're going to really focus our energy. Again, limited bet in general because this is the kind of fight where you just don't want a lot of exposure and we gave you that warning about Dontel Mays, you know, shortness of breath, asshole tightness, all that different stuff that you want to avoid suffering when you're betting on a guy like that. Okay, let me run over a few more notes here. I know I'm being long-winded, but I want to make sure I cover everything. For Dontel Mays, he's 31, land 3.65, strikes permanent, absorbs 3.84. We went over that, has about one takedown per fight, has 22 total fights, Important to remind yourself he had an 8-0 amateur experience. So more fights than what his pro resume gives out. Good wrestler. Has fought decent opponents. He did fight Cyril Gaon a few years ago, 2019. Excuse me. Lost that fight by a heel hook in round three. Um, he's on a winning streak. He's won two in a row. Our concerns for Mays, durability, fighter IQ, conditioning, activity. He only fought once last year and once 2021 as well. At 31, he should be more active. And then for May, still looking for a signature win. Even with this win, this wouldn't be a signature win, but still doesn't have that kind of win where you're like, oh, he beat that guy. As for the Brazilian-Japanese fighter, Augusto Sakai, also 31 years old, coming out of a good gym, landing 4.73 strikes per minute, high volume, we talked about that, absorbing though 4.07, uh, excuse me, my nose is running, I apologize, but absorbing about four per minute, that's quite a bit, takedowns, nil, Takedown defense, 54, 54%. That should be tested this fight by Mays. And for Sakai, 21 total fights. Good amateur experience for Sakai. Um, had some wins. Pro experience, very good. Went 4-1-1 in Bellator. Has KO power for Sakai. Not a high finishing rate recently, but he does have KO power. You have to respect that they are heavyweights. I don't see him knocking out Mays here. Um, and then, of course, the high volume for Sakai, which I think is a path to victory for him, is just keeping that output going. Our concerns for Sakai, been knocked out his last four fights, durability, split decision wins over Arlovsky, and even off, you know, just not very good opponents. Uh, his power, it's questionable. When you do the film, you know, study on him, you find a lot of his punches are not very powerful. Maybe that's just sort of the way he fights. And then defense, absorbing too many strikes, right? So that's your breakdown for Mays versus Sakai. Uh, I am a bit torn. I can see the fight going either way. I can see Sakai breaking his losing streak, getting a decision win, uh, using a more tentative approach. And if you're betting on the fight, decision win for Sakai, I like that spot. The lines are not yet, but that should be pretty juicy. And then for Mays, he feels like the younger fighter. He's not. He just feels like the younger guy, the more athletic guy, and a fighter who 
has to improve. He needs to get this win to show that he belongs in the UFC. And we should mention for Sakai, another loss to be five in a row. Let's say it's by a knockout. Could we be seeing the last of Sakai, who at 31 is still very young for the heavyweight division, and the UFC is in need of more heavyweights? So, yeah, it's a toss-up here, but uh, we're going to go with Dontel Mays to win the fight by decision. That's your breakdown, guys. All right, moving up the card, we've got a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Andre Muniz from Brazil and Brendan Allen from the United States. I'll give you the pick to get out of the way. We like Brendan Allen to win the fight by decision. Now, currently, Allen's sitting at plus 155, so he is the underdog. And Muniz, at the other side, is minus 180. We'll peel back the layers of this onion, try to explain to you why we like Allen here. I mean, in a nutshell, we feel like he's the more well-rounded fighter. Of course, Andre Muniz is very good with submissions. He's going to be a threat to possibly get a submission here. And both guys are, are decent on the ground. I mean, I give the advantage there to Muniz. But nonetheless, we'll go through it with you, try to convince you for why we like Brandon Allen. But the pick is going to be Allen by decision. As for the basic information, these two fighters, Muniz is 23-4 and four overall, 5-0 in his last five fights. He's currently 33 years old, 6'1 in height with a 78-inch reach, and he's out of Tata fight team Montes Claros. So height and reach-wise, a 1-inch advantage in height to Brendan Allen, who's 6'2", compared to 6'1 for Muniz, and then a 3-inch reach advantage there for Muniz, who's got a 78-inch reach compared to 75 inches for Brendan Allen. Allen is 20-5 and five overall, also a lot of experience, 4-1 in his last five fights, out of Louisiana, 27 years old, and he's out of Rufus Sport Mixed Martial Arts Academy for where he trains out of. Some basic details of these two fighters. Muniz, he's uh, he's a grappler, a wrestler. That's what he does. He, he does okay in the feet with the striking. It looks technical, but how much power? He lands 1.91 per minute, strikes that is, and absorbs 1.45, so very low volume, but that's because, again, he's usually on the ground, backpacking, trying to move into sub submission positions. Not much of a striker. At least he's only absorbing 1.45. That's, again, because he's keeping the fight on the ground. He averages 3.71 takedowns per fight. That's a very high takedown number for Andre Muniz. So he's not just a good grappler. He obviously has some wrestling and takedown ability as well. For defense for takedowns, Muniz is getting 45% defensive takes or defending 20, 45% of the takedowns defended against him. Um, that's an okay number for a guy who probably doesn't mind even getting taken down anyway. And then he's had 27 total mixed martial arts fights between amateur pro and everything else. I don't think he even had any amateur fights. For Muniz, we like his submission skills. He's on a winning streak. He's had nine wins in a row. Good wrestler. Good size. Our concerns for him, striking's not great. A bit one-dimensional. And his decision went over Hall. You know, Hall's not even fighting mixed martial arts now. He's doing some boxing. And Hall, reputation of not being much, not being very aggressive, right? And Muniz went to decision with him. Wasn't able to do much, so not, not a great uh, mark on his resume. As for Brandon Allen, few years younger, 27, coming out of Rufus Sport Academy. Orthodox fighter. He's right-handed versus the southpaw. That's right. I did forget to mention that Muniz is a southpaw. Again, not the greatest in the feet, but uh, Allen is a right-handed fighter. Average fight time for Allen, 8 minutes and 20 seconds. Now, for Brandon Allen, surprise me. He has a negative striking ratio. Lands 3.99 per minute, absorbs 4.01. Does average 1.31 takedowns per fight. Um... You know, just about a takedown per fight. Not high, nearly, not nearly as high as the number as Muniz. For takedown defense for Allen, he defends 50%, almost the same rate as Muniz. So either guy here starts trying to get some takedowns, they're probably going to get one or two for every three or four they try. And for total fights for Allen, 34 in total. For Allen, former Dana White contender series uh, fighter, had a signature win over Kevin Holland back in 2019. Good volume, balanced fighter, has good finishing ability, has finishes in six of his, six of his last nine wins. Our concerns for Brandon Allen, striking ratio is 
pretty much even, I think tilting towards negative. Durability concerns, he has been finished in three of his last five defeats. Takedown defense needs to improve as well. So those are the bullet points of our you know, write-up, our notes. Now's a good time to tell you that if you're listening to this right now on YouTube or via our podcast, all of the raw breakdown notes when we're doing fight breakdowns, those are available. You can access them via our Google Drive, super free. You just simply go to the link, you can download these documents in Word document per fight. So like the fight notes I'm looking at right now for Brandon Allen versus Andre Boniz, that's just one Word document. It's like two to three pages long. It's super, super easy information. You know, strikes landed per minute, that kind of thing. Basic details, bullet point format for pros and cons. You can access all that. The link is down below in our description here on YouTube. So if you listen to this now on, on YouTube, you can go down below, see the link there for our Google Drive. If you're hearing this on our podcast, I would just recommend when you're done driving or traveling, whatever you're doing now, get to YouTube, look us up. You'll find this episode for this breakdown of uh, UFC Vegas 70, and you'll be able to go and access the Google Drive, save that link, and there's what we, there we'll be putting up for all of our fight breakdowns. So not just UFC, Bellator, PFL, Invicta, whatever else. So that's the bullet point for, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, raw notes for all of our breakdowns. Now in that same Google Drive, you'll find an Excel sheet, which has all the fights, Fighter links for prior fights, like the film library is there. You also have information on fighter comparison, stats. Um, there's a ton in there. It's a full Excel sheet, color-coded, very easy to understand. There's a little um, uh, section below that kind of describes to you how to read some parts of the chart if you don't understand what the, the, the lettering means, whatever else what the color coding means. That's all available to you guys absolutely free through our Google Drive. So check that out. It's down below again. You can access our full Excel sheet for every single breakdown we're doing. It's cool, it's easy to download, it's free, no no hooks, no subscription, no paywall, no Patreon, super easy to access. And on that same note, subscribe to our newsletter. We do a newsletter via Substack. Substack's a great platform, super easy to use, they have a, a mobile app as well. And with that platform, you get our weekly newsletters, which is a breakdown for all of the Invicta fights, UFC, Bellator, whatever else we're doing. So like this week, for example, we already sent out the PFL breakdown for PFL 5 coming up on Friday, which has the full card breakdown, a bet tip sheet in there, and and fighter notes, stats, the whole nine, and a link also to the breakdown video. So subscribe to our Substack newsletter. You can get all this information sent to you each week. No spam. You get two or three emails a week. That's the most you'll get because we only do maybe at most two or three cards per week. But for UFC, for example, you get those every single week there's a UFC card. You get that Monday or Tuesday with the full card breakdown, nice written format, super duper clean, easy to understand. And if you don't want to read through it, that's fine. You can always come back and listen to our videos or subscribe to our podcast and hear everything you're hearing here also on our podcast. Okay, Whew. that was a bit long-winded. Back to this breakdown here. So Andre Muniz, the favorite versus Brandon Allen, and we like Allen to win by decision. Now, Allen cut his teeth on Contender Series. That's how he got himself into the UFC. He had a submission win in round one, 2019. Since then, comes to the UFC, he's now eight and two in the UFC. That's a very impressive record, and kind of I kind of forgot how high his winning percentage was since he got into the UFC. His only two losses in the UFC have been to Sean Strickland and Chris Curtis, both good fighters. It is important to note, though, he did get knocked out in both those fights. Now, Allen has three other defeats in his career, which were to Trevin Giles, Eric Anders, and Fluffy Hernandez. All those guys, that was before the UFC days, but those fighters all have made it into the UFC. So quality losses, again, pretty good opponents. Allen's a balanced fighter, good skills on the ground, on the feet. I think on the ground in this matchup, you got to give the edge there to Muniz, right? <clears throat> Allen averages 1.31 takedowns per fight. We talked about that. 50% takedown defense, eh, okay. 
Now, recently, for Allen, particularly high amount of finishes. And of his last nine wins, six have been by finish. So that's been a good... I mean, he's fighting the UFC. Those are all UFC fights. So that's a nice, good finishing rate at this point in his career. Um, now, as for our concerns, what are our issues with Allen? What are the areas that I think he's going to have a possibly hard time with in this fight, maybe even beyond? Number one, the striking ratio. He's landing just as many as he's he's absorbing. So... Four strikes per minute, he's absorbing, about the same going out, needs to improve his stand-up defense, decision-making, fighter IQ. He also needs to improve his takedown defense. At 50%, it's not a cut it, especially against good wrestlers, you know what I'm saying? And the last thing is durability. He's been finished in three of his five defeats. We talked about the last two knockout losses were Sean Strickland and Chris Curtis. I mean, those were tough, tough fights. I think the one, I think Sean Strickland was like late notice or something like that. That was the story. But Chris Curtis just got him. So if you chin check, uh, you know, Allen, he, he will go out. Now, at 27 years old, our thinking here with Allen is still young, making big improvements. And we're hoping here that he's getting a handle on things and he'll probably win this fight handily if he if he does the right thing. Now, as for Muniz, it's likely a good portion of this fight takes part on the ground. That's what Muniz wants to do. That's his wheelhouse. He's a submission guy. And they both like to play games in the ground. Muniz, in my opinion, he's the better grappler. He's better jiu-jitsu, has better submission, you know, attacks. But Allen isn't terrible on the ground either. I just fear maybe if Allen plays this game with him, he might find himself at the bad end of it. A submission by Allen, though, himself, not outside the realm of possibility, put it that way. I I'm going to be betting on that if the, if the money's juicy enough or the odds are juicy enough for, uh, for a submission win there for Allen. Three rounds of close grappling with no possibly a finish. That could also happen too. We could also see them going back and forth, chasing heel hooks, grappling for three full, full rounds. No one gets cut. No one gets really, you know, threatened. And we just go to the scorecards, right? We're leaning towards Allen though because he's the one who's a more well-rounded fighter. He's not as one-dimensional as Muniz. We've seen that in prior fights with Muniz. Nine, nine fight winning streak, yes, very impressive. But man, he's the prototypical one-dimensional kind of fighter. And against a guy like Allen, I think that's where the separation is going to be. I think Allen's got the ability to do a little bit more. He's a little better in a lot of other areas that Muniz is not. Whereas Muniz, just submission ability, just on the ground, that's where he has to be. Otherwise, he tends to come up short. Now, nine fights in a row. He's won nine in a row. That is impressive. Now, if the fight takes out, excuse me, if the fight takes part predominantly on the ground, I favor Muniz. If the fight is balanced, halfway on the half of it on the ground, half on the feet, I give the edge there to Allen because that's what he is. He is a balanced fighter. I think he can mix things up be effective in both areas and ultimately just as long as he keeps things balanced on the feet he lands a few more strikes maybe lands a few harder punches he gets his own takedown has his own submission attempts and so we neutralize what happens on the ground and he has the edge on the feet the betting spots were like the most of this fight the fight going over a round and a half fight starts round two Muniz by submission and Allen on the money line I may come up with some of those spots between now and the time we put our tip sheet together for this uh, fight uh, card but yeah, Muniz by submission, that's a no-brainer. I guess if you want to start choosing rounds, I think after round one, because I think with Allen, he can get a little tired, a little sloppy. Tends to happen round two, round three. So maybe Muniz by submission, round two or three, that should be a nice return, plus 700 to plus 1,000, I'm just going to estimate. And then if, as for Allen, I'm not confident he it's a submission or a TKO or just a decision win, you know, because he could just outvalue Muniz on the feet. Nothing crazy, not, not, not a very exciting fight, but it's a decision win. So for Allen... I'm going to just take him on the money line at plus 155 or any kind of plus money. There's a good return there. How aggressive we'll be on it. 
I don't know, subscribe to our Substack newsletter. You'll get the full tip sheet on this card and you'll see exactly what we're doing. That's full free tip sheets. There's no, again, none of this is being paid for. We've been on a nice little roll recently, back-to-back UC, UFC events with plus money. Subscribe to our tip, subscribe to our newsletter. You get all that information. But we like Alan here, the younger fighter. He's younger. I think he's got more potential. He's more balanced. By decision. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Okay, main event for UFC Vegas 70 is going to be a light heavyweight bout between Nikita Krylov from Ukraine and Ryan Spann, the American fighter. Before I get all into the deep breakdown, I'm going to give you the pick right now off the bat. We'd like Krylov to win the fight inside the distance. Not the most confidence in the world in this pick, but we have some reasons to be on the side of Krylov, and we have some concerns here with Ryan Spann. We'll go through all of it right now with you, one little step at a time, peel all the layers back, and hopefully give you some advice that you can count on. Not necessarily from betting standpoint, because sometimes the advice we give is stay away advice. <laughs> in this case, there is some stay away advice in some parts of this fight, but we do like Karloff to win. Let's go over the particulars. Mr. Karloff is twenty six and I'm sorry, twenty nine and nine overall. A lot of experience. Three and two in his last five fights. He's the slight favorite right now, currently around minus one fifty, based out of Ukraine. Thirty years old, six foot three in height, with a seventy seven and a half inch reach, and trains out of YK Promotion. As for Superman, Ryan Superman Span. It's a cool nickname based upon his name, right? He's got a Superman tattoo, right? Huge one on his chest. 21 and 7 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. He's a slight dog here, based out of Beaumont, Texas, 31 years old, 6 foot 5 in height with an 81 and a half inch reach. And he's out of Fortis MMA. Very good gym. So, height and reach wise, there's about a 2 inch height advantage there for Span, and roughly a 3.5 to 4 inch advantage in reach for Span. And when they're on the feet, it, it should be a significant advantage for him. You know, the ability to obviously to reach out and touch his opponent from a longer distance. Span will lose technique at times when he fatigues, but when he is fresh, uh, his punching is pretty sound, and so there will be that advantage for him. Okay, looking at the breakdown that we have in this fight, so we like Nikita Croft to win the fight into the distance. How does this happen? He's a veteran, 38 fights under his belt, a lot of fights, right? You have to worry about attrition and, and damage over the years, right? He's faced some quality competition, guys like Glover Teixeira, Jan Blahovitz. Um, and Kalayev. So he's faced some very good opponents, obviously championship level opponents. He has a high finish rate. That surprised me. I just didn't remember Krylov as being a guy who has a high finish rate. He does. 87% finish rate. He usually employs a little wrestling into his game plan. He's not a heavy wrestler, but he's a balanced fighter, and it's good for him to mix things up, at least keeps his opponent more on their feet, right? He averages just over two takedowns per fight. In clinch scenarios, does a really good job using his knees. So let's say, for example, even if he has his back against the fence, does a good job of getting his knees up, and he does have a kickboxing background, so kind of makes sense. Now, unfortunately for Nikita, he has been on a rough streak recently. The last few years, he is 4-4 four four in his last eight fights. I'm not a math guru, but I'll be that's 500%, right? Even money. Okay, so durability is also becoming a concern. He has been finished in seven of his nine defeats. Again, another stat that kind of surprised me. And if you like Ryan Spann in this fight, you're not liking Ryan Spann three rounds jabbing and having a higher volume and winning on the scorecard. You're liking Ryan Spann because he's going to test the durability and chin of Krylov, probably get a knockout. We'll get back to that later on. Now, when Krylov fought against Paul, Craig Paul, that is. He went to the ground and messed around for an extended period of time in the first round. Remember this fight like it was yesterday. The only place that Paul Craig is going to beat you is most likely on the ground, and specifically on his back. He likes to work from his back. Arm bars and the whole nine, and look what he did to Jamal Hill. That win has aged very well, considering Jamal Hill's the champ, and he took Jamal Hill's arm and you know mangled it. So Krylov goes on the ground, 
you hear his corner saying, dude, get out of there, disengage in some kind of uh, either Ukrainian or Russian. If it was Russian, Tavai, Tavai, Zgroy, you know, cut that out, dude. And unfortunately, he doesn't listen. <laughs> you hear the commentators because they're ringside and they're like, we could hear his corner saying, you know, disengage. He gets submitted. So low fighter IQ moment. Now listen to your coaches. I, just a whole bunch of things, right? Now against Odismir, he fought him. He got into a dangerous slugfest early on in that fight. And it got me to thinking, you know, I think that Krylov is a reckless fighter, honestly. That's the best way that I could describe it. He's a bit reckless. Now, was he always like this? I couldn't tell you enough about him 10 years ago, for example. I don't know. But the current Krylov is a kind of guy who he's reckless. He puts aside game plan. He, trying to, he kind of just goes for it sometimes. He got cracked against Otis Mir. Now, he wins that fight. Okay, I get it. But, you know, it wasn't a smooth, easy win. He was, you know, knees buckled there for a second. So bottom line, when it comes to Nikita, if you're betting on him, there's some inherent variance in his fighting style, okay? And he's a bit of a bit of a wild man. As for Ryan Spann, very talented fighter. You can look at his physique when he weighs in, when he's doing his face off, when he comes out to the octagon. He's in good shape. I don't know for sure. I'd wager that he probably played some other sports when he was younger because, again, he's got a very athletic physique and he's in great shape. His finish rate speaks for itself, 86%. So you have 87% finish rate for Nikita, 86% for Spann. Likely, we're going to see somebody get finished. Likely. I say it under underscoring the line, likely, because last week we had Zach Palga fighting Jordan Wright, and I, I was ready to put my mortgage payment on that, that that fight would not go the distance, and somehow it did. <laughs> so look at that. Um, so talented, very good athlete, high finish rate. He earned his UFC contract with a 21-second submission win on Contender Series about five years ago, 2018. A very good jab. Span's jab is not only quick and sharp, it's heavy. It's hard to describe the physics of it, but some people, their jab is not just a touch jab. Like when it lands, it does like extra work. It's like, I don't know if they're twisting it. It's like they have a ton of bricks at the end of it. And just when it hits, it hits hard. That's how Span is. The end of his jab is heavy. Um, he's knocked out opponents before with that, <laughs> that jab. Um, his ground game is limited, but he does have submission ability. So it's like kind of a give and take. He's not amazing on the ground. If he gets fatigued, he's on the ground. Not great. But looking at the, the paper, the paperwork there, the topology, you see the submission wins. He has submission ability. He has a recent win over Dominic Reyes and Ian Kutalaba. I'm talking about Ryan Spann. Those are good wins, quality wins. He TKO'd Reyes and submitted Kutalaba. Now against Anthony Smith, whole different story. Against Johnny Walker, same thing, an entire different story. So you could suddenly see there's levels there, right? When he's fighting Dominic Reyes and Kutalaba, <clears throat> he looked pretty good. Anthony Smith, Johnny Walker, different threshold hasn't really busted through and showed that he belongs with those guys just yet. And not to mention that Smith and Walker finished him. They both finished him. So bottom line is he struggled against better competition, done okay against the subpar competition. Our biggest concern for Span is the endurance beyond round one. You watch him in round one, skilled, technical boxing, good athlete, good movement, good footwork, just tires. I'm not sure if it's a physique thing because he does have a stronger physique, but he does slow down. He does get tired. Um, if he can't get Nikita out of there early, knock him out or hurt him early round one, early part of round two, I'm just concerned about the output, energy level. And with Krylov, dude's a veteran. Been around for a long time, right? So Span is the better of the two athletes. We get it. He also probably even hits harder than Krylov. We'll give him that. We just can't go to the window for guys that have endurance issues. Like AJ Fletcher last week had a good showing, won the fight. Excellent. It was a good showing from him. I want to see more of that. But when you have people that have, you know, endurance issues, it's, you, you're tentative. You should be tentative. And in this case, 
it's the only reason why we're hesitant on Span because in a lot of other areas, he's pretty good here. Maybe not as good as grappling, but he could survive. Striking and power, yeah. So based on Nikita's 500 record <laughs> over his last eight fights, four and four, and his two-fight winning streak, he's also probably due for a loss. So yeah, I just flipped the script there. Nikita's four and four in his last eight fights. He just won two in a row. That means he might be due for a loss, right? <laughs> he hasn't won three fights in a row, Nikita that is, in about five years, 2017, 2018 was the last time he put three fights in a row together. So he's trying to do that here with this fight. So in closing, we have zero confidence on, on Nikita. We're picking him to win, but we're not very confident. And for Span, this is a really good fight for him. Test where he's at, you know, break through that invisible glass ceiling of the guys that are right above you. I would put Krylov in that Anthony Smith conversation. Johnny Walker, I think he's in that range, even though I think Johnny Walker's a step over Anthony Smith, but still in the conversation. You get the point. The betting spots for this fight, I mean, this fight, excuse me. The one we like the most is the fight not going the distance, and then secondly, the fight going under two and a half. We like those two spots, either again, Span finishing my man here, somehow Krylov, or Krylov wearing him out. Now, a few more thoughts here before I wrap this up. For Nikita Krylov, 30 years old, average fight time, seven minutes and 17 seconds, absorbing 2.5 strikes per minute, landing 4.45, excellent ratio, almost double the output of what he's receiving. Averaging 2.11 takedowns per fight. That's a good offense for takedown offense for Krylov. His takedown defense is 53% for takedowns. That, I marked it in my notes because if Span were to commit, I mean, again, I'm not a mathematician, but if Span were to try, like, say, like two or three takedowns, he probably gets one of them. And he should do that to mix things up. And then for Krylov, he's fought 38 total fights. What's to like about Krylov? We kind of talk about some of these things. Experience, wrestling ability, Finishing ability, 87% finish rate, knees in the clinch, winning streak, and he's very active. He's fought <clears throat> fought three times last year, three times low in 2022. Our concerns for Krylov, a little bit sloppy at times, fighter IQ questions, durability. He's been finished seven of his nine defeats. Rough stretch, right? Four and four last eight fights. And he's a B-list fighter at this point. No disrespect. He's just not at the level that these guys are in the top echelon. He's right below that. And still might be enough to beat Span, but that's where he's at. For Ryan Span, 31 years old, at a Fortis MMA, right-handed fighter, average fight time, only 4 minutes and 39 seconds, so doesn't really go into round 2 often. He lands 3.42 per minute strikes and absorbs 3.42. That shocked me. I would have thought his striking ratio would be better. It's dead even. Uh, that's a concern. That's not good. Not the greatest amount of output, and he's receiving too many punches. Takedown defense. Like his opponent here, hovering around 50%. So either guy, if they try to employ a wrestling takedown offense, or at least a little bit of it, should have some success. For Ryan Spann, averaging 1.46 takedowns per fight, a little bit less than Nikita, but still enough that he can mix things up. Look, a round in this fight could be won by just one takedown. Key takedown at the right moment. Total fights for Ryan Spann, 31. What does he do well? KO power. We talked about his finish rate. Excellent jab wrestling. Our concerns for him... Well, number one, he had a split decision win where he defeated Sam Alvey by a split decision in 2020. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not good. Let me double check my notes on that one because that's just it's so hard to even read that. Did he? Did that happen? He did, yes. Split decision win over Sam Alvey. God bless you, Mr. Sam Alvey. He came by our show recently, but no, not a good sign. Doesn't look good on your resume. Durability. There's some questions there about durability for Span as well. He has been finished in five of his seven defeats. Submission defense specifically. He seems to be getting submitted 
as the main way of him getting finished. Not so much TKOs, but submission defense needs to improve. His cardio slows down a little bit. We talked about it. He gets off balance. His striking ratio is even. Those are my concerns for Span. That's your breakdown for Ryan Span versus Nikita Krylov. I would like to give you some more props to chase or some things that I like, like Krylov by submission in round one. I can't tell you much because there, there, there's areas of this fight where we feel like there's blind spots. And one blind spot, for example, is Ryan Span, you know, shoring up his cardio. <clears throat> we saw what AJ Fletcher just did last week, and he looked a lot better. He was prepared, full camp, the whole nine. I can see improvements from Ryan Span. I can see Ryan Span coming in here and outclassing Nikita Krylov. And we're like, oh, wow, look at, look at the new Ryan Span. They're both about the same age, but for Nikita Krylov, it's like dog years because the dude has fought so much. Okay, so he may be 30-something, 31, but he's more like a 45-year-old body. Tons of fights. Fuck it, guys. Taking a beating. For some reason now, also not following coaches' instructions. A lot of reasons to not like Krylov here. So if you're on Ryan Spann, I feel you. Full respect to you know whatever's leading you in that direction. For us, we're going with the veteran, hoping that he has the fighter IQ to get this fight into round two and three, use his wits, use his you know wisdom, his experience to drag this thing out and see if Ryan Spann has the cardio to keep up with him in round two and three. That's your breakdown, guys. Keep an eye out for our full bet tip sheet. That comes out on our Substack newsletter. I'll probably be repeating that throughout the entire breakdown. Please subscribe to our Substack newsletter. Free content, free breakdowns, and of course, our bet tip sheet for all UFC cards, Bellator cards, Invicta cards, PFL cards, so on and so on. All right, guys, let's move on. All right, boys and girls, this brings us to the end of the episode, but I'm going to give you a summary of our picks to win. And for those tuning in, this is what we call our Swift Picks segment. We'd like Krylov to win round three TKO, Allen to win by decision, Mays to win by decision, Suarez by round one TKO, Mallet by submission in round two, Peak by round two TKO, Jesse Vicious by decision, Levitt by submission in round number two, Johnson, that's Charles Johnson by KO in round number three, Joselecki by submission in round two, Oliev by decision, Perez by decision, and Jose Johnson to open the car with a decision. Those are your swift picks for UFC Vegas 70. All right, so now that you have our picks for the entire card, let's point out some spots to you that maybe you're not seeing that I want to point out to you here at the end of this breakdown. I'm going to encourage you, the Excel sheet that I'm staring at right now is available to you. As long as you have, I guess, a Google account, which is free, you can access our Google Drive. We have several shared folders there, and one of them, well, one of them will be labeled UFC Vegas 70. So when you go to our Google Drive, you'll see a folder that says UFC Vegas 70. When you open that folder, what you have in there is all of our breakdowns for each fight. So you'll see a file that says like Mike Mallet versus Johan Leonis. You open that Word document, you have basic information like striking stats, takedown numbers, takedown defense, their pros and cons, age, gym they're training at, right hand, left hand. It's just a bunch of basic information, but compiled for you, nice and neat, easy to understand. Word document, you can download it totally free, no strings attached. Also in there though, for each of the fight cards we do, you'll see an Excel sheet. Open that Excel sheet, download it. Download it and then use it however you want to. Now you can't edit it on our Google Drive, of course, because we have a manager who does that and you can't do that. No, 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 not allowed. But you can download it and use it as your own template, play with it, maybe use it to help you uh, compare against whatever your notes are. Totally free. Now, if you're a capper, there's nothing wrong with accessing this information. Nothing wrong with comparing your notes to our notes. It's totally okay. Doesn't make you better or worse. Doesn't make you uh, a fraud. It's just comparing notes. But this Excel sheet has a lot in there. It's got the money lines. It's got the, the records, last five fights, the age, the gym they're training at. We compare their experience, IQ, cardio, Finishing ability, striking ability, and grappling. That's one section where you have a scale from one to five, how we rate each fighter. And that's right there in the chart. You'll see it right in the middle of the Excel sheet. It's pretty awesome. And then there's an area where we have our props, the props we're looking at, 
And maybe the most valuable thing, especially for cappers, is we have a film library there where we have four or five links next to each fighter's name where you can go and watch prior fights of these fighters. It's all in there for you. Hours and hours of compilation of data at the touch of a finger for free just for you. So take advantage of that. And now looking at that Excel sheet, we have a way to mark the fighters that we want to see win or the ones we're picking to win, excuse me. Not wanting to see win, that makes no sense. The most left column will either mark a fighter with an asterisk, which means we think they'll win, but we're not confident. Or with a W, which means we think they're gonna win the fight. Or a W with a little up arrow to the right, like, you know, the uh, to the second power, like two to the second power, or, uh, you know, when you're doing mathematics. Anyway, get back to this. A W with an up arrow right next to it means that we like that fighter a lot to win the fight. We're very confident, probably gonna be parlaying them. For example, Tatiana Suarez, when you look on the Excel sheet, you see a W with an up arrow because obviously we're very confident in her winning. If you go down the sheet, you're going to see we like Mike Mallet a lot. At minus 215, it's a good price. We're very confident in him. We're also confident in Jordan Levitt at minus 105. Love the price tag. Like him there. I don't think very highly of Victor Martinez just yet. And I think Jordan Levitt will find a submission. Joe Selecki at price at minus 520. That's a obvious but we do like him a lot so those, those are the most confident money line parlays we see or money line spots we see on the card jordan levitt joe selecki mike mallet and tatiana suarez now fighters that we expect to win with medium confidence trevor peak charles johnson and alia and jose johnson i'll tell you i like this jose johnson kid i'm hoping money keeps coming in on armfield which it's, it's already doing maybe we can get jose johnson around plus 150 I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm overvaluing him here, but I just think that Armfield hasn't done enough, and I like Jose Johnson a lot as an underdog here. Now, the fighters that we're picking to win, but we have low confidence in, they have an asterisk by their name. That would be Aylin Perez. We're choosing as a dog. We have doubts about Haley Cohen. Might be close, but we're choosing Aylin Perez, but we're not going to be backing up the truck to bet on her to win outright. You know what I'm saying? Jasmine Jasudavicious. Jasmine Jasudavicious. Dante Mays and Brendan Allen. They happen to be all dogs, but those are dogs that we think have a chance to win. We're choosing them to win, but not very confident. Now, speaking of underdogs, let's go over the underdogs on the entire card that we do like. We like Jose Johnson to open the card and Aileen Perez. So the first two fights in the card, we like the dogs. Mind you, Perez is like plus 115. She's barely a dog. Same with Jasmine Jessica Vicious. She was like plus 110. Now she's plus 105. She's technically a dog. We just like her outright. It's not really an underdog. You got the point. Dante Mays at plus 110. It's moved around. He's kind of come back down. It's a pick em range. We do like him, but we're not alone there. I've heard a lot of cappers say that they like Dante Mays here, but we do like Mays. And then Brendan Allen is probably the most certifiable dog that we like besides Jose Johnson. He's sitting at plus 175. I'll tell you, man, Andre Ruiz is a really good fighter. Good submission skills, but uh, yeah, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid, especially at 2-1 to one price, and I think Brendan Allen's a little underrated here. So that's the, those are the dogs that we like the most in this card. And that's your breakdown, guys, for UFC Vegas 70. Please don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel if you like this content, if you find this information helpful. If you've been following us the last few weeks, we were pretty hot. Last weekend, we were plus money again. We won plus 3.15 units. The week before, we was plus 9 units. So we're a bit of a hot streak. If you're tailing us, congratulations. Enjoy the winnings. We're looking to go ahead and do the same thing again this weekend with UFC Vegas 70. So good luck to you guys. If you're not betting and just... You know tracking the fighter information and just using our data to know more about the fights that's also okay too guys enjoy the weekend enjoy the fights a lot of stuff coming up we got bellator this weekend you got ufc this weekend enjoy it's going to be tons of action all right guys peace